You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Stanley Sweetheart is a typical college student who wants to be a typical underground filmmaker. Keep coming. Keep coming. Where am I going? Be like a made of gingerbread. Stanley makes films and loves it. Stanley makes love and films it. How are you, darling? How come you never knocked me up? Hey, how's school, baby? Stanley, I'd like to make love with you. I mean, it's surprising what people will do to, to get into the movies. Have you gone to bed with a lot of girls, Stanley? No, no, not that many, actually. 37 Jews. Such a liar. I don't know why I lied. I think... I think I'm afraid of people. Or maybe of what they might think. I guess maybe I just want to be liked, you know? I like you, Stanley. Sometimes I hear you Then you're gone Open your eyes and listen to the door She's a nice chick. Hey, do you know that if you live in the city long enough, man, your skin turns gray? Stanley Sweetheart needs a new head. Lick your finger and take some. Okay. Uh, Hold on to your head. He's growing one in his magic garden. Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Daniel Kremer. I think we're going to enjoy this. It's an interesting character study of life. Also joining us is Mr. Jared Labine. Thanks for uh, letting me be on the podcast. This is my first uh, time on here, so thank you. This week, we are looking at The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. It's based loosely on Robert T. Westbrook's novel of the same name and follows the exploits of the unlikely named protagonist who's not very likable, Stanley Sweetheart, who's played by Don Johnson. He fancies himself an underground filmmaker and Lothario. The film follows him on his exploits as he navigates life, women, and the scene in early 70s New York City. This is a little bit of a film modie, so it's a little tough to spoil since it's uh, difficult to find. But we're going to talk about why that is, and maybe we're going to get a copy as we go along. We'll figure it out. But regardless, just know that there are spoilers ahead on this episode. You have been warned. So, Jared, I have to ask, what is your history with The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart? I started off uh, in the 80s. I was one of those kids in the 80s who really like Miami Vice. And from the first season, I started recording all of the episodes of the series. This was during the first season. Uh, I think I caught it in about the middle of the season. And then when they started to rerun them, you know, in the, in the middle, I think, of the summer, I caught up on the episodes I'd missed. So I was like pretty hell-bent on collecting all this, the series. But I also had a lot of books, and they would go into about the different cast members and the, and the movies they worked on. 
And both Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas had some pretty interesting 70s films, very different from the kind of the TV personality that I think people recognize them as. Their movies tended to be sort of on the 70s cult film fringe. And um, I think my first one was I saw A Boy and His Dog and really obsessed over that film. And I became kind of fascinated by Don Johnson's 70s films. And that's where I initially heard of the title, The Magic Garden of Stanley's Sweetheart. But then I kind of forgot about the film. And then in the 90s, I was living in San Francisco and I went into an antique store. This was just this interesting antique store. They had a bunch of old stuff there and film posters all over the wall. And they had the poster for the Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart on this one door. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, this poster is just really cool. It's it's super pop art. It's like some kind of like Andy Warhol movie poster. And I kept looking at it going, why do I know this title? And who's that on the poster? And they didn't list any of the, the cast members on the film poster. I don't know if you've seen the poster, but they pretty much just say who wrote it and who directed it. And I think maybe a Martin Pohl film. But they don't list any of the cast members. And so I, I remember thinking, what is this? How do I know this title? And then I looked it up. And then I think that's what sort of started the search. I, I bought the poster and... I think I found the book first when I read the book. I really loved the book and I really connected with the character. I thought he checked a lot of the boxes on some kind of relatability and it just made me want to find the film more. In the late 90s, I did manage to find a bootleg VHS tape back when eBay would actually sell like bootleg VHS tapes. And I paid about, I think about $350 for it. And at that time, that was a lot of money for a bootleg VHS tape. Jared, it's still a lot of money. And I remember the only website at the time that really kind of even mentioned the film was this one uh, by Tom Fitzgerald called Pimpadelic Wonderland. And he had a whole slew, a list of like lost films from the 70s. And that was on his list. And so I ended up contacting him and, um, you know, we did some trading there wasn't very many people that really had remembered the film and heard of it. You know, when I had been searching for it for years, I had gone to cult film conventions where they had tables of bootleg sellers. And I would ask all of these guys, you know, do you have this film? Not a single one of them had ever heard of it. And when you think about it, this is an MGM film. This is a film that, you know, had Don Johnson in it. It, it had been a double feature with so many big, 70s cult films that you would think that the name would have somehow resonated with cinephiles and yet it was pretty much unknown i mean not many people really ever heard of the film so i got this dhs tape and um that was the only way you could really see it it was like a tnt broadcast it was uncut the rated r version that got released but you know wasn't the best quality and and that was basically the only way you could see it for for many 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 years fast forward to 2011 or 2010 I uh, found the 35mm trailer on eBay, and then I bought that. That was my first film purchase concerning Stanley Sweetheart. At the time, I was interning with uh, MoMA, and I was working in the film archiving department. And the person I worked under had kind of helped direct me on transferring the the trailer. So I managed to transfer the 35mm trailer, and I ended up putting that on YouTube because nobody had really seen you know, an actual piece of like the print of the film. I mean, it was mostly just this TNT muddy broadcast version on VHS that people had maybe seen parts of. But 
this was the first time that I think people were able to kind of see a, a film quality of it uh, or a nice transfer of, of, a, of a trailer. So that was um, my sort of beginning of it. And I became kind of obsessed with more after that. Back in around 2016, I had an old roommate contact me that he had found indeed a 35 millimeter print of the Stanley Sweetheart film. This was part of a L.A. estate sale, as so he's told me. But yes, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Nero Nava, who was in a band called Barbara Steele and City of Women, he found the print in L.A. So that was a big deal. So we pretty much have you to thank for just about everything Stanley Sweethearts that, that's out there. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I'm a one-man fan base, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And Daniel, where do you come into the picture? What's your relationship with the film? I think this might have been the first bootleg I ever bought, like a gray market bootleg of a film that I ever bought. And I wound up buying a lot over the years. I really began my, my collection of like gray market bootlegs. I want to say around like 2000-ish. I think it was this movie and uh, Skidoo were the first two that I got, weirdly enough. Another counterculture oddity, if you want to call it that. I recall seeing the title of this uh, also on uh, Pimpadelic Wonderland, seeing images of like lobby cards that he posted on that site. And like, of course, like being drawn to that, I was like, wow, like, it looks like a really amazing, you know, counterculture item with all these like great crazy colors and kind of neons. And, you know, it was like a lot of like party scenes and young Don Johnson. And they're like, wow, I, I really want to see that movie. And then it was like on his like m must find list. And uh, I was like, God, like one day it would be really, really cool to see it because like I had, you know, as you know, by now I have a yen for for those, you know, those type of movies. Just like as a studio item, as like MGM having put the, you know, the film out, that was like, you know, kind of extra fascination because that was like the era when, you know, I, I had already seen uh, Zabriskie Point at that time. And I'd seen like uh, there was like a, an era at, at MGM, like that, the one year of 1970, they, they had released all kinds of like more counterculture oriented films like uh, the strawberry statement and uh, uh Bruce McCloud, you know and you can also kind of count in that in that lot uh and a couple others as well as like the, the Jim Aubrey era of MGM so um moving forward uh once uh, the guy at the Pimpadelic Wonderland uh had secured his copy I'm learning now that was from Jared I had no idea that uh, he got it from Jared so I I put an order in for it and and you know I don't know if he's out there still he was a little flaky. I think I, I tried to put in like five orders with him. I only got one, and it didn't have uh, that film in it. But it had like a, the Christian Licorice uh, store was in that order, and I think Deal, uh, Berkeley to Boston, 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues, uh, and like one other. I had to wait and wait and wait. But I mean, you know, I like he didn't abscond with any money of mine. It just like you know, he he was only ready to take one order. Uh, I think I put in Magic Card, but it didn't come. And then, like, years later, um, finally appears on uh, Don Alex's Subterranean Cinema site, which is where I finally got my copy. It was a VHS dub, uh, and it had, like, the you know the TNT watermark at the bottom right-hand corner. Several generations down the line, uh, it looked maybe like seventh or eighth generation copy to me. So I was like, okay, well, here's a start. It's, it's not the greatest quality, but... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it had all those like, you know, counterculture kind of earmarks or, you know, counterculture touchstones that I really kind of tuned in with. Any film that a uh, few people have heard of kind of gives me a, you know, a, a fill in the blank, really 
proud of my ownership of, of, of the title for many years. When I saw, uh, I was, I was already living out here in, in uh, uh, San Francisco. I, I, I moved out of New York. I saw that Alamo Draft House in New York was showing a print of, uh, of Stanley Sweetheart and I, I nearly, I blew a gasket pretty much. I move away and then this is what happens. And then like I, um, I, I, I think you might have contacted me, Jerry, because I might have written on some ones like uh, I think it was Linda Gillen. Maybe yeah. Linda Gillen. Yeah. That yeah. I saw something that you posted of right. like a collection of, of like of images of New York, and I was like, "Wow, this is a really cool edit." And I think I contacted oh, you. Oh, right, that's right. It was my. Uh, it was the. Yeah. the I, so I, I edited a short film, uh, which was a, a kind of a compilation of uh, New York. Films shot in the Mayor Lindsay era, uh, the, the John Mayor John Lindsay era, which is like the grimiest New York and the most like and the grittiest New York. And featured some clips from uh, Magic Garden in there, and that that uh, clip show or short is available online still. Set to a uh, reggae song called uh, "Happy Survival." So yeah, I, I think that you would you would watch that, and then I think we talked about also the uh, sideline glance of a pigeon kicker at that point. Exactly. And, yeah. And then yeah. I think that you were you became uh, aware of the fact I was kind of in the loop on all the things that you also enjoyed. And then like you were like, hey man, next time you're in New York, let me know, and uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll arrange a you know a showing for you. And I was like, great. So I, mm-hmm. I I came to New York. We actually made arrangements. I went all the way out to you know to Long Island, where you uh, uh, um, used to live until recently. We and, uh, so I met your friend Sean. And uh, uh, and then we watched uh, your transfer of the film, uh, as well as uh, I, I think that night we also watched the Grasshopper by with the with Jackie Bissett. We just had like this running counterculture film club meeting, which I've I kind of personally affectionately call the Divine Brotherhood of uh, Stanley Sweetheart. So yeah, we meet every now and then uh, uh, and or, or, or try to it, and then we just kind of watch any series of. Uh, Either counterculture-based films or films that are made in the era that maybe have echoes of it. Your copy of Christian Liquor Store probably came from me because I had a friend that worked in the Turner Library, and he said, "What can I get for you?" And I sent him a whole long list, and he managed to transfer that and at least one other title to VHS for me, and then eventually put it on DVD-R, and then Confessions of a um, early 2000s bootlegger uh, in the DVD-R trade moved out of VHS looking for, and really what spurred me bringing this whole conversation back to Pimpadelic Wonderland, I was obsessed with Pimpadelic Wonderland and that list of lost films. And I just, whatever reason, I made it my job to try to track down as many of those as I possibly could. And then just send them over to Tom and say, like, here you go. You're looking for this film. Here's this film. And, of course, there was still a lot that, you know, the site's long gone now, but there was still a lot on that list that we were never able to find, things that I'm still looking for, including another Linda Gillen title, which is called Why. And still looking for all this stuff. But, yeah, I still have my want list out there. Every once in a while, I'm able to kind of check off a title. We won't talk about Bill Gunn's stop, because I think there's another connection going on out there between you and me um, <laughs> about that. Yeah, I just watched that one, too. I really liked that film. I was I loved it, actually. I thought it was great. 
Yeah, but yeah, Daniel and I, we speak the same language on counterculture. We can literally sit around and watch like six or seven of those films in a row without a problem. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's been like a major joy to have our marathons and, and be able to like just really indulge in the cinema that it's, I think, often forgotten about or just sort of sets the side or people kind of see it as dated cinema, I guess, on some level. But. Those early days of the of the gray market bootlegging was really uh, incestuous inner circle in many ways. <laughs> but, yeah. Everyone's connected to everyone, and like you know, oh, I got that from so and so. Oh, I gave him that. Well, that's kind of kind of. I I remember when I traded Stanley Sweetheart with Tom Fitzgerald. I remember he like offered me like four or five films, and if I re- recall, I think the ones I traded for Stanley, he gave me a copy of Deadlock. You know, the movie with the can uh, soundtrack. Yeah, and then the, the Can documentary. I think he also gave me um, the Lion Has Seven Heads with John Leod in it. We'll be talking about the Lion Has Seven Heads in July when we do a whole month of Cinema Novo titles. Counterculture cinema—it's a weird thing because some of it is 100% sincere, thinking of things like you know Captain Milkshake, and then you've got things that are just cash grabs, like the powers that be not knowing what the kids are looking for. So they make something like a skidoo and it's like, here you go, kids, you're going to like this, right? Yeah, of course. I've always wanted whatever the hell that movie is, that weird combination of, (laughs) of like Nilsson and Jackie Gleason. What is this thing? I've always wanted Jackie Gleason and Peter Lawford and Burgess Meredith tripping on acid. That's exactly what I've always wanted. (laughs) You don't know what you want until you get it. And you get those weird titles like, Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget About Mercy Humpy and Find True Happiness? Or, Who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying these terrible things about me? The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart is not as outrageous, but it's getting up there. The name alone, Stanley Sweetheart, I mean, it's the name of a tool company. <laughs> and so it makes me wonder, like, what was the intention of that name? <laughs> And nobody ever questions him about it. When he introduces himself as Stanley Sweetheart, nobody bats an eye. I keep hearing like different interpretations of what, what like the Magic Garden represents. And then, you know, I was reading one article where they explained that that was like code for like the, your sexual region, like the groin. Yeah, when you see the title, Stanley's growing a new head in his Magic Garden, that it, you know, obviously has like sexual connotation to it. But then other people are like, oh, no, the Magic Garden is, is, you know, his mind and his daydreaming. So it's almost like it can be applied in in either one, the the sexual orientation or his fantasy one. Or the psychedelic one. And, of course, like that whole thing, I guess, relates to the fact that the Hieronymus Merkin, uh, I guess a Merkin is like a kind of kind of copy. Yeah. As a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, I hear a lot about Merkins. See, Anthony Newley was on to something way ahead of his time. I would never dare show it to anyone and try to be like, oh, yeah, you have to see Ken Aronimus Merck and I forget Mercy Hump. But like in, in private, like uh, like every now and then, I, I do weirdly enjoy that film. I kind of have a, an affection for Anthony Newley. But hey, who doesn't have an affection for Anthony Newley? Come on. And there's kind of a connection there, too, with the Candyman and then this weird fucking song in this movie, this sweet gingerbread song. I mean, when that song starts up the first of two times, I'm just like, what am I watching? This is not right. Whatever is going on here. It's like a moment <laughs> shot. Like one would have heard like early, like in a, in a more kind of vanilla 
white bread era, perhaps. But like, I, I and I was a little uh, initially perplexed by its its inclusion and its you know the way that it's used multiple times in the film because it seems to be contrapuntal in a way, I guess. Years later, uh, if you go onto YouTube, there are like high school bands. One of which actually almost like brought me to, to tears. I'm not ashamed to say it was weird. As it's like you know, like yeah, I've had a weird you know relationship with this song in the movie. I've been rather, I mean, uh, in turns kind of ambivalent about it, and because you know, just kind of generally perplexed at and like you know that this high school version with this jazz band. I'm just like, oh my god, like why am I touched by this? And I think it's because I've watched the film over the years to a degree when I guess that song is baked into me like a kind of osmosis. So like hearing it in this other context and like the, I guess it's a, it was also like the harmonies that the, this high school band they were hitting. I was like, Oh my God, like I'm in the Seinfeld line, I guess is like, what is this uh, salty discharge? <laughs> it adds another kind of weird sort of surreal nature to the film. Like you have this weird syrupy bubblegum song just kind of comes in the middle out of nowhere, but also it's like lyrics kind of hit upon these kind of homoerotic levels that the film kind of tries to touch upon but never fully latches onto or at least in in the version that we are we're seeing currently but you know all tasty and tan sweet gingerbread man i mean it's like it, it goes along with the sort of idea of like even with the poster art like its initial poster art that went out with it i mean you have this image that's at one moment like pop art and another it's got this like pink naked don johnson on the poster which is you know, obviously a striking image in itself. The way that they're sort of selling this film and this package has levels of like homoerotic interest, you know, even from the casting of the film of Don Johnson and Michael Greer, you know, they had just, their names were literally known from Fortune in Men's Eyes or The Gay Deceivers, uh, Michael Greer's uh, film that he did before it. So you kind of have this all as part of the sort of selling package of Stanley Sweetheart which just sort of throws in a, just a different kind of loop into the counterculture mix, I think. Um, I mean, I think there's other counterculture films that maybe touch upon it. But this film, in general, seems to be very concerned with, with sexual identity and the idea of trying to be an honest interpretation of the youth of the day in their search for sexual identity. Now, whether they succeeded in that attempt is probably up to the audience member. For me, I find it that's what's kind of one of the more interesting aspects of the film is that, you know, it's all about these sort of like kind of masks that these characters sort of wear and and these personas. And like, for example, you have um, uh, uh, Linda Gillen who plays both Barbara and Shane. And, you know, as Barbara, she's somebody that's dated this killer and, and she's stoned out of her mind. But there's also this identity where she's like, you know, Stanley doesn't initially recognize her and she doesn't recognize him because she's stoned out of her mind, so she says. But she basically tells him, you know, she wants to be called Shane now. She wants to be called this, this asexual name that kind of liberates her and allows her to express herself and search her identity with some sense of freedom. And, you know, at first, you know, Stanley's kind of rolling his eyes to this, but as the picture kind of moves on, you see that, that, that Don Johnson is in need of doing this as well. And that's what kind of jumps to his Brando impersonation. And then when we finally get to Diane Holt, 
uh, his character, Kathy, seeing them at the club, kind of remarks that the same thing that they said at the beginning, I hardly recognize you. So it's kind of interesting, this sort of journey that these kind of characters take in the sort of search for sexual identity through drugs and, 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 and music and, and rock and roll. The Linda Gillen character, there are several times where I don't even recognize her. When she comes in and she's doing an Australian accent and she has a blonde wig on, I'm just like, who is this character? And it takes me a while before I even realize, oh, this is Shane again, slash Barbara, because, yeah, she is constantly changing up her look. It's when the accent slips that I'm finally like, oh, okay, now I know who this character is. But each time we see her, she's got a very different look for a lot of the film. That's one of the more interesting angles of the film that sort of rarely gets kind of touched upon is that for a society the way it is today with kids and the sort of search for sexual identity and new names of, of calling new forms of sexual identity, this film seems very like forward thinking on some levels to me. Like, and I, maybe it's accidental or maybe it's the fact that it was written by a, you know, a guy that was like 19 or 20 years old who was, you know, going through his own stuff at the time. But there's something about it that rings true to me, even though it's the one thing that seems to be the criticism towards the film, that it, that it is a Hollywood cash grab of the counterculture films. It's the one aspect of the film, though, that really rings true to me and, and is different from the rest. To go back, the film does feel like it's a hodgepodge of a lot of, like, more popular and more famous counterculture films. Like, there's a little bit of blow-up in there. There's a little bit of the English Paul Morrissey. Actually, I would almost say it's almost like a Hollywood version of that because Leonard Horn seems to have the same kind of feelings towards these people as probably Paul Morrissey did when he made his films in some ways. Yeah, I think he had very maybe similar outlooks about that generation. Though I think, you know, Leonard Horn was maybe constricted more with like a Hollywood system with this film, but it, it tries to be a lot of different things. And, and it even has a little bit of Brian De Palma's greetings and high mom in it. And, and other counterculture films, especially Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy also was one of the things that people saw that in 1969. It was rated X and it wins an Academy Award for Best Picture. And GM's like, see, the doors are open. We can make any film we want. We can put in drugs. We can put in male prostitution. We can put anything we want in a film. If it's real and it tries to be real, people are going to recognize that and award that. And I think Stanley Sweetheart kind of won out with this idea that it was going to kind of capitalize on the freedoms that Midnight Cowboy kind of opened the door for. And then they didn't. It, they just sort of fell on their face with it, at least with the, with the main public. That's kind of the way maybe I see the MGM kind of took the project on a little bit. Epitome of a Hollywood, uh, you know, counterculture film to me is, uh, Stanley Kramer's RPM, which, which, uh, you know, came out that same year. That to me is a very canned portrait of student rebellion and, uh, and, uh, the broader, you know, counterculture. Uh, you have like the, the Anna Margaret character who, you know, is kind of a nominal youth figure or, you know, youth kind of archetype who's like, you know, kind of wrestling with the older generation who like might try to be with it, but they just don't get it. But it's really a, a fuddy duds kind of purview of, uh, of, of where it was at, I guess is the way to put that. But RPM is like the, the one end of the spectrum, whereas like maybe the other end would be like a, uh, you know, Morrissey flesh type of a thing. So I think, uh, to me, Magic Garden feels a lot more like a, like a flesh than an RPM, which, which I think is mm -hmm. to its benefit as like a real 
item of, of the era that uh, I think had aspirations towards wanting to be real, wanting to be authentic and mm-hmm. you know, true to the to the lifestyle, I guess, mm-hmm. right? In some ways, I remember when I first saw the film, I felt a little bit critical about the film due to its sort of um, apolitical voice. Like it didn't really seem to take any kind of a political perspective, which at the time seemed like that would have been the case for a college film. But in some ways, it feels also maybe more sincere that it didn't sort of go that route and maybe overdo it. Because then it would have definitely felt like, okay, this is trying to check off all the boxes to, to be this Hollywood student film. But, you know, I think just even sort of search for sexual identity is sort of an interesting thing in itself. And I don't think it needed to be cluttered with, you know, giving him an overly political perspective. I'm, I'm not sure it would have did the film any favors. No, Stanley Sweetheart is not interested in anything political. He's only interested in himself. Well, there is a deleted scene. And in the book, there is a moment where he has a, in a fit of anger. He writes this angry letter to his draft board because he gets his draft card and he delivers it in the mail. And it's just this kind of like, fuck you to, to the, you know, to the world kind of letter. In the movie, I found stills of Don Johnson in a car going to um, basically his draft board. So they did shoot a scene that was on some level political or, or just him sort of rejecting the Vietnam War. Now, how far or what edit this scene appeared, I don't know, but I've seen two pictures that they actually shot. And it must be a fantasy sequence because he's driving a car and he doesn't have a car in the whole film. So I guess, yeah, it must be like a fantasy sequence. Yeah, there's a lot of fantasy sequences. And we start off the movie, I mean, after those opening credits, which are very sad and low, and we don't necessarily know how long these credits are taking because Stanley's switching outfits throughout the entire credits, or at least, you know, he's got a shirt on, he's got a jacket on, he doesn't have a shirt on, these kind of things. This may sound naive, but as soon as the movie starts, I'm already confused and even confused on rewatches because I keep thinking Stanley has to be living right across the street from the World Trade Center because that's what is being built in the film. So when they're talking about going uptown to Columbia, I'm just like, my God, he is so far away from Columbia. This doesn't make any sense. And what is this whole thing, too? And I'm also thrown off the first time I see it by him getting into a cab and the guy's yelling at him that it's a downtown cab versus an uptown cab. And then Stanley basically has his little moment and then he yells at the guy and then puts his feet up onto the back of the, the the seats in front of him and the guy takes him uptown, I guess. But what is this whole thing? And I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I swear I'm not just being glib. What's this whole thing with uptown cabs and downtown cabs? I don't understand that as not being a New Yorker. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, I never experienced it. <laughs> I have not. I have never perceived I might, it, but you know, yeah, it must I mean, be a 70s thing or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 116th and Broadway, Columbia University. Uh, wouldn't you know it? You get into a downtown cab and you want to go uptown. By your goddamn college bunk, what did they teach you there? How to be stupid or something? I'm sorry, you see how... Ah, shit! Wouldn't you know it? You get into a downtown cab, hey. you want to go uptown. You got that. Herman Steiner, what did I just shut up? 
now when you see the World Trade Center in movies, you pause a little bit. Uh, but it is interesting that we now are watching this movie and we're actually seeing it built, which is nice. I actually recall that uh, on uh, the the old subterranean cinema site uh, run by Don Alex, uh, he had like a whole section of his page devoted. It was like right after uh, 9-11. And he, he had actually devoted a whole area of his page to films that featured uh, uh, the, you know, the World Trade Center early in its either, either its building or when it had just been built. Uh, I know that he was very interested in uh, the, the, the Irvin Kirshner film Loving, uh, and uh, as well as uh, um, Godspell, which has a number on top of, of the World Trade Center. So, uh, uh, and you know, this film is also part of his uh, his little uh, study. One thing that really uh, hits me also about this movie, and, and a lot of the movies of the era in general, is that it's occasionally, on a technical level, maybe a little ragged. A couple of those edits <laughs> are are kind of rough, and then like you can you know, like you you catch the you know the cameraman. In, uh, in either uh, windows or like there's there's one gaping shot where like it's it's like the you know the fisheye lens where they're kind of running after Stanley and the two women and like the you know, the cameraman catches himself in the mirror and like it's like it's full body you see him he's like it's so like a, uh, like the, there was more of a freeing sense back then where like that's okay it's it's almost like uh, uh, you know uh, it's like oh yeah they won't really notice. And, but it's almost on, on a whole other level, like, oh, we're kind of making an underground film ourselves, except we have MGM money behind us or Marty Pohl money behind us. So that part of it also, I mean, like the, the early scene with the cab driver and like the, the kind of the transition, if you want to call it that, from the reality into his fantasy rebuke of the driver. Uh, there's like a fast motion from the sidewalk of the cab kind of uh, peeling off around a corner. It's not the best fast motion by by any means, it's like you can kind of see like there are uh, people about to walk past. They're walking past, maybe just a little too fast. So there's like a technical raggedness that that I mean I tend to find comforting personally. I find it present to varying degrees in many films of the, of the time uh, where where there was just a kind of throw professional concern you know to the winds because we're doing something arty or underground or whatever. I mean this film feels like it was edited with a very blunt butter knife to me. There were so many times where it's just like, what the fuck, man? In my notes, I just keep saying abrupt cut to, abrupt cut to, and that's what it feels like. There was literally, I think, three editors involved in this film, and maybe about three different cuts of the film. The version that we see is a very neutered version. I mean, I think it's cut by at least six to seven minutes. And we've got possibly the draft board scene is deleted. They shot three different endings. There was numerous scenes in the film that had to be reshot because of either lab problems, technical issues. For example, the Brandon Maggart scene had to be reshot. The bathtub scene with Holly Near had to be reshot. And also the body paint scene. They were having problem after problem, different editors. When they finally had come with their, their one cut of the film that was rated X, they had a special screening for it in Orange County. And it was a deputy sheriff was at the screening, along with, I believe, Girl Scouts. And this was a, a, a screening for Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. You shouldn't allow Girl Scouts that movie. Exactly. What the fuck? It's about but open it, marriages. Yeah. <laughs> They're showing that movie. And as a sneak preview, unannounced, they show The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart, the X-rated version. And now this is a rated R film. And so 
you know, I think a third of the audience come out complaining about emotional distress and uh, the deputy sheriff, they filed a $2 million lawsuit towards MGM. And, you know, after MGM was hit with that lawsuit, they quickly re-edited the film. They cut out. I hear different reports. I've heard, I've seen some clippings that say it was grossly censored and others say there was just two scenes cut from the film. Whatever the case, it's about six to seven minutes. And I've seen numerous scenes that I believe could be deleted scenes from the film. Uh, one in particular is a big fantasy sequence, which seems to be a pretty interesting sequence. And it's really unfortunate that we can't see it currently. But after the lawsuit, I think MGM, I mean, from what I've read, they shot the film in eight weeks and Martin Pohl only went to MGM for $1 million to make the film. That's what I've read. So if MGM paid $1 million for this film and they make this film and then now they're paying $2 million in 1972, they lost the case. So they had to pay the $2 million plus lawyer fees. So this is why this film has probably been buried. Anybody that could advocate for it won't. The director's dead, um, Leonard Horn. The actors most want to distance themselves from the film. The producer, Martin Poles, passed away. And the person who has music rights involved, Mike Curb, I'm sure wants to wash his hands from the film. When he was running for a political position in the 70s, I'm, I was reading a newspaper article where the person interviewing him was literally attacking him, who, you know, he's a right-wing conservative, but they were attacking him with the film The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart and telling him, how can you run for office when you make music for pornographic films? People had this film kind of, I think, leveled at them a little bit which only made them want to distance themselves more from it. And I think that's one of the big problems of this film is that there's nobody to advocate for it, but us, <laughs> you know, it's, there's really it's yeah, you mean people. <laughs> yeah. For the army of, uh, of sweethearts. Well, it, it, it is sort of the case. It seems, I mean, it, you know, um, even the people that maybe will talk about it, I don't know if they're in love with the film. It's a, it's a weird film. Um, it's not a film that, a lot of people like. I, I kind of know who's going to sort of like it, I guess, because um, I've shown certain friends of mine. And it's always my friends that are like musicians or like into the counterculture or live on the artistic fringe of life a little bit. Those are the people that tend to really like this film. But yeah, it's, it's, but there's not a lot. <laughs> it seems like. Warhol liked it, didn't he? Yes, Andy Warhol liked it. Yeah. Pretty big. But he was right. supposed to be in the film. Andy Warhol was initially supposed to be in the film. There's many uh, reports that he was supposed to play the character of Dr. Osgood, which was the freaked out psychiatrist that Linda Gillen's character references earlier in the film. I've been having my head shrunk down in Brooklyn. You know, you ought to think about that. It's really cleared my head out. My shrink, Dr. Osgood, he's a right-hand derivative. It's really wild. He tries to break down all your defenses so you can really be free. First you take off all your clothes, and then he swings you around the room and things. You know, I was very confused about when this sort of fantasy party sequence was supposed to take place. But when I was doing research on the film uh, this afternoon, I came across a um, an article which was talking about the making of the scene. And apparently that scene was going to come during, I think, the electric head scene uh, after the song Water, when Don Johnson sort of falls to the mattress. I think that's where the, the fantasy sequence begins because yeah. he's just done all these drugs yeah. and then this Andy Warhol and that's where they cut it. 
So that's, I think, where the fantasy sequence lies. I mean, I don't have the screenplay. This is just my guesstimation. But in this fantasy sequence, which is in the book, uh, Don Johnson's or Stanley Sweetheart is uh, walking around on the ground on his hands and knees, uh, totally naked, but just wearing a shirt. And he's kind of walking around this sophisticated party. And this uh, woman who is basically uh, played by Holly Near. She's dressed up in this leather and high heels, and she, like, stomps and impales Stanley's hand into the ground and, like, kicks him. And then he just kind of wanders around this party and crawls under a table and meets Kathy. But in the dream, she goes by the name Mary Jane, and she starts to suck his blood, I guess. But I don't know, because in the, in the book, Dr. Osgood isn't in the fantasy sequence. So they must have toyed with this fantasy sequence and wrote this part in for Andy Warhol. Originally, Andy Warhol was going to be in the scene and um, Ultraviolet was going to play one of his nurses. And then when Andy Warhol didn't show up or Ultraviolet, Linda Gillen, they dressed her up as a nurse, put her in the scene, and then they got Brandon Maggart to come back after playing the man in the cafe, and then he played Dr. Osgood. Like I said, that scene was cut out. But it's the one scene that I would I would love to see in the film. I mean, it's it also kind of adds into further into ideas of sexual identity as well. And I think it would have it would have been also a needed dose of fantasy that kind of is needed for the film a little bit at that point because his daydreams kind of just sort of drift away about midway point. You're not really basing the film on his fantasies anymore. But I think that film would have been a nice scene to have still in the film. Even Maggart, in the, the scene that's in there still, Maggart is uh, propositioning him into a, a homosexual encounter. So uh, having him as the kind of Osgood surrogate or proxy or whatever would have made sense because Osgood, I guess, grabbed that one, uh, according to Shane, or grabbed the one guy's uh, nuts, right? He grabbed the, he grabbed exactly. the ball, yeah. which, is what, which is what yeah. Maggart wanted to, to do uh, in, that, mm-hmm. in that scene. So uh, it, it would have been an interesting kind of uh, melding or amalgam of of figures and characters and wow they kind of represent what they represent in stanley's psyche a little right too right it's unfortunate that that scene's not available and it's funny that we're talking about it because i don't think anybody knows about it like even people that have seen the film i don't think they really know that there's sort of this like missing scene from the film or you know various missing scenes you know there was also another thing that um you know one of my discussions because i've been friends with linda gillen for a while and she's been absolutely fabulous and fantastic with like answering all my questions through the years. Cause I mean, through these years, I'm needling her with Stanley sweetheart questions and she's always so wonderful and just like answering my, you know, my emails or messages. You know, I remember she told me that the first cut that she ever saw of the film, there was this sort of other fantasy sequence where Don Johnson, you know, before he goes over to uh, Andrea and Shane's house, there was he puts on these aviators and then he has this fantasy of driving this motorcycle while this Doors or Jim Morrison song is playing in the background. And then he arrives over to Shane and Andrews and he's doing the Brando impersonation. Stanley, what are you up to? Is Shane home? No, she's out somewhere. Uh, well, I was, uh, I was looking for some shit. You got any? Come on in. But it's almost like this kind of like wild one moment of motorcycle and Brando. But that was another fantasy sequence they cut out. 
And Linda Gillen told me is that they, he didn't like that the Jim Morrison song had the word fuck at the end of it. It was, the scene was punctuated with that word. And Mike Kerb being very conservative, he didn't want it. So he stripped the song off the soundtrack and then they cut the scene out. And so when Linda Gillen told me this, I'm like, motorcycle, I've never heard of such a scene. And then I was reading an article in Show Magazine, and they talk about how Don Johnson had a stunt guy who was supposed to ride a motorcycle, but Don Johnson, showing off, jumped on the motorcycle, drove it into a pole, and then ended up in the hospital. And then they had to, like, start shooting again, like, a couple of days later. They did shoot a scene, but again, we don't, we don't see that footage. And there's also three different endings that were shot. In the book, the ending ends with them at uh, JFK Airport. And when I was at the MoMA's film archives and I was going through their film stills for Stanley Sweetheart, I came across a still of both Kathy and Stanley sitting at the JFK Airport. So they did shoot this ending, but again, we don't see it. But I would, I would love to see all this footage that they shot of the film. I don't know if it's somewhere in a vault somewhere or if anybody has it anymore, but there's more to this film. <laughs> Yeah, it's our next project. Yeah, our next project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's yeah. what's hilarious in, in the film as it as it now exists is that you know he shows up to uh, uh, Victoria Rassimo's place and he's doing Brando, and <laughs> we're just watching. It's like, okay, why is he doing Brando now? Just for you know, shits and giggles. Yeah. So yeah, that would have explained a great deal. My biggest problem with the movie is just how much I hate Stanley Sweetheart as a character. He's just such a piece of shit. Every time he meets a girl and she talks about a roommate, it's like, oh, tell me about your roommate. And he immediately wants to bone them. And when he fucks over Kathy, who's like this really nice, sweet girl that he seduces, takes her V card, all this stuff. And then it's just like, oh, fuck yeah, let me fuck Fran and now have this long-term affair behind your back with Fran and Fran seems like the most interesting character to me. And then she disappears from the film halfway through. And it's just like, I wanted to, you know, like hashtag where's Fran, like bring back Fran. I want a movie about her, not Stanley sweetheart who just time and time again, disappoints me and pisses me off. And I just, I, I hate this guy. Well, in the book, he, he ends up telling Kathy about, the relationship with Fran. So the whole thing kind of just like explodes in his face. Why they omitted that from the script, I don't know. I mean, they just kind of make him get mad at her. They kind of just put it all on her. Like she's the one that ran off with, with Danny and we're maybe supposed to forget that Stanley's just screwed her roommate. I don't know. But in any case, he just, her character is just meant to be something he can control because there's nobody else in the film that he can, can really control. I mean, all, everybody's kind of out of his element a little bit. And she's sort of the virginal type that she's the freshman, you know, that he can kind of come in and sort of dominate. And then when he does it, he just sort of lashes out like a psycho or in this sort of abusive way. But what, you know, but to go back about Stanley's likability, you know, I personally like his character. I think his character's kind of, you know, really interesting in a lot of ways. But I also kind of see him as kind of one of like your precursor Travis Bickle types. I mean, his character is also not so far off from Salvino's character in Who Killed Teddy Bear. I mean, these are all like these twisted youth films of guys in New York and maybe like what New York does to these kind of characters. But Stanley Sweetheart almost seems like he's kind of like in the line of, of these lonely New York types that are one step away of being a, a, a complete psycho. 
or, or some level. I mean, I mean, yeah. you know, also, more 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 apropos to that, Hi Mom, you know, John Rubin, the you know the, the Robert De Niro yeah. character, who is a filmmaker and does kind of take yeah. uh, advantage of the of the Jennifer Schult character and tries to like uh, secretly film her and all her other uh, uh, apartment uh, building mates, you know, all all of her neighbors. Uh, and then of course he winds up blowing up that building. That building or a building. I mean, he, he actually winds up uh, uh, indulging in, in an actual act of terrorism, and that's played for cheeky humor at the end when he happens onto the news crew, and uh, he's you know he's he's being in- interviewed on camera after the after the building has gone up in in, uh, in flames. You know, he's and he's also killed uh, the Ruben character has killed his his pregnant wife again. Uh, I think uh, that's also Jennifer Salt. I think they bring her back at the yeah. end of that. But yeah, I, I guess more of a it's that's kind of a cousin to. Uh, uh, Stanley, I guess, you know, you might say another filmmaker yeah. who has maybe some, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know, uh, you know, depending on how you read that, either slight or major sociopathic tendencies. Well, that he's masturbating to his mother's letter when he's <laughs> reading the letter. And she's talking about how she hopes that the plane that she's on is going to crash so that he can have insurance money to continue to live his wasteful life. According to a, an article, um, Michael Greer said that, uh, Robert Westbrook told him that that part was biographical. <laughs> I don't know. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> for uh, Sheila Graham, I guess, then. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know, I always question the ending, too, with, with Michael Greer, like, pointing the gun at his mom. Like, was Robert Westbrook saying something about Sheila Graham with that scene? <laughs> I was wondering about that a little bit. Yeah, that scene comes out of nowhere. Cause I was, I, the only character, you know, I talked about how I liked Fran. I kind of like Danny, the Michael Greer character too, especially because he's just so like, fuck it, just be like his whole thing of like, just be and that he shows up different places and he's almost like this alter ego for Stanley at times because he ends up getting the girl that he wants. He gets Kathy. He's super cool. He's, you know, doing music at this club and kind of doing a, a good Jim Morrison impersonation. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. You know, Michael Greer, Michael Greer with two chicks, just like Messiah of evil, where he's got the two chicks in that as well. But then out of nowhere, we get the scene of him hunting rabbits and then hunting his mom and then blowing his head off. It's just like, what the fuck? Where did this come from? I've read that as a kind of uh, interpretation because I've, people have written about how, um, when he goes to the, uh, Stanley's apartment towards the end and uh, Kathy's there and that's where I guess he first meets Kathy. He's leering a bit at Don's chest a little bit and uh you know I mean it's kind of hearkening to his roles in uh in the gate to see fortune men's eyes a bit. And then uh and then that that, that last uh sequence where he's hunting and the, and the, he lets the rabbit kind of get away like you know he I think he says like run little bastard or you know run home to mama or something like that and uh, I've read I've read uh, an interpretation of that that uh, someone wrote uh, that that's that's his concealed or repressed homosexual side, which we're talking we're talking earlier about the uh, realization of sexual uh, identity in the film by various characters. There's a person who who thinks that that's kind of a, a you know kind of a, almost like a dreamlike manifestation of Danny's sensitivity and not wanting to kill the rabbit. And then not being able to accept what he would see as the darker side of himself, that, that kind of repression of uh, sexuality, of, of like true sexuality, perhaps. 
I mean, I, I pretty much read it the same way. I mean, I do think that, you know, uh, Michael Greer did admit in an interview that when he'd asked Robert Westbrook about the character of Danny, that he did tell him that, you know, he saw his character as being gay. And I do think there were some choices made in, in the casting of Michael Greer, though he does play the part extremely butch. That was one of the sort of underlining aspects of this character. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm leering at Donnie's chest, too, so I, I can definitely empathize. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's in the book too, isn't it? The, and the, that, that last, uh, uh, hunting sequence is also in the novel, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, we're at that last party. Um, you know, the, the, there's music, there's drugs being passed around. You know, Stanley is on various, like, like everything in the room. He's, he's taken essentially. And then all of a sudden it turns into a bloodbath and it, it, the last cut is actually to Stanley before we catch Danny kind of, uh, uh, on the hunt, uh, it's, you know, it, it flashes to a close up of, uh, of Stanley's face. And then, and then I think it cuts into the hunting sequence of the first time. And then I think it cuts back to Stanley, I think maybe one last time. And then it cuts into, uh, into the last, into the, into Danny going off and, and letting the rabbit go, giving the rabbit amnesty. And then, and then the whole, uh, you know, curtailing of his death. I mean, I guess with that intercutting that way, you could also interpret it as Stanley's fantasy of Danny as it's a very, uh, heavily ambiguous, nearly vague type of a sequence, which I'm, which you can unpack in any, any variety of ways, I think, which I, I still don't really have the, the, the answer code for that, but th- th- there's some interesting, you know, writings about it out there that I've, I've read. I'm in agreement with you. I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of subtext in, in that ending, but. I think also one of the problems, though, is that some of the ideas in Stanley's Sweet Art were maybe not fully realized or fleshed out in a way. Part of my, my interest in this film is also, like, not just the film it is, but the film that it was maybe meant to be and the film that it could have been kind of scenario. Um, with Robert Westbrook, I, mean, he, I think he'd written less than 100 pages, and he showed Martin Pohl because he was working on a Martin Pohl production at the time, this film called The... Um, I think it was called the, the appointment. Oh, oh, it was, the, no, it was the arrangement, I think. Or, the arrangement. No, no, I'm sorry. Yes, the arrangement. Yeah. yeah, he was working on that film, and I think he wrote less than a hundred pages. Showed Martin Paul, and Martin Paul, you know, was like, "This is great. This is fresh. It's from a kid's perspective. This will be the perfect kind of youth film." And he basically, I think, uh, signed him up for the film with, without even him finishing the book. And then I think he got him the book deal. So I think the whole book was very rushed. I mean, he got the, the the contract so quickly that everything was into motion. And so I don't think he really had the time to fully develop who these characters really were, like Danny. It was just like he had ideas and he kind of initiated them, and then they were just quickly bankrolled into a film. And then in the middle of the production, you know, this actually should I should back up because there's a little bit about the casting is that. Robert Westbrook actually auditioned for the role of Stanley Sweetheart. Martin Paul didn't want him, but he wanted, I think, to play the part. And then they auditioned him. They they went through the motions, but they inevitably they ended up searching out, I think, at 1,900 people before they um, before Martin Paul saw the play Fortune in His Eyes he cast Don Johnson. But before that, I mean, they thought about a, I think besides Robert Westbrook, Hedy Lamar's son. Anthony Loder was one that screen tested. Richard Thomas, who was in Last Summer, he screen tested. 
Um, Don Siegel's son, Christopher uh, Tambori, he was in consideration. Um, so they had some people in mind for the part, but I think they wanted to, you know, they wanted to go with, with a nobody. So they went with Don Johnson. But initially, the, the girl that was going to play Kathy was a girl, a uh, lady by the name of uh, Katie Heflin, who was Van Heflin's daughter. And when they started to shoot some scenes with Don Johnson, they realized there was like no chemistry. So they ended up firing Katie Heflin and replacing her with Diane Hall. But in the process, Robert Westbrook had fallen in love with Katie Heflin. And so he ended up running off, getting married to Katie Heflin. They ran off to Rome in the middle of the production. So Robert Westbrook kind of skipped out in the middle of being the executive producer on this film. Um, he says he, they didn't like what they were going, the direction they were going. But I think when you look at the film, it, it really isn't that far off from the book. I mean, I'm not sure what the gripe was exactly. But yeah, so they ended up replacing Katie Heflin with uh, Diane Hole. And if you watch the film very closely during the language lab scene, you will see one shot where you have Don Johnson and then you'll see Katie Heflin wearing the exact same sweater that, that Kathy wears in the scene, that, that canary yellow sweater. And she's wearing it in the scene and there's only one shot. So they did shoot footage for Katie Heflin. And then another actress that was originally in, is supposed to be in the film was, uh, Joni Jones, who was Quincy Jones's daughter. And she was only 15 years old at the time. And um, when the mom had read the book, she immediately yanked her daughter from the production. So they had to fill that position really quickly. And Victoria Racimo at the time had played, was playing a nurse in Stanley's short film, Headless. And they were impressed with her. So they said, you know what? We'll reshoot that scene and we're going to take her and she's going to play Andrea now. So Victoria Racimo was like a quick replacement for Jolie Jones who, like I said, was only 15. I mean, I can't even believe they would have hired a 15-year-old for that film. That's kind of crazy in itself. Some of those articles are just so proud of how much nudity there's going to be in this movie. And you're talking about Michael Greer and that, you know, he's asking Westbrook about his character. And there's those stories where he's asking Horn about his character. And Horn just, it felt like, from the stories I'm reading, felt like nobody really liked him very no. much. I mean, we're, I think they were more connected with Burt Harris, who is the assistant director. And you can actually see Burt Harris. He's in the um, Alexa Ketsu. He's a guy wearing this, like, candy cane stripes type color, you know, technicolor shirt, I think. But he's, like, laying down on a mattress in one thing. But... He was the guy I think everybody turned to. But that's also kind of what makes the film sort of interesting to me, is that there was a slight improv to it because here you have Robert Westbrook kind of left in mid-production. I mean, that must have changed the mood of the production on some level, you know. And then the director, and from what I've read, they were literally making, you know, scenes up on the spot. Like they were like, you know, their shooting schedule was pretty chaotic. Like they, they, they weren't very organized it allowed the cast to kind of improv a little bit and the film kind of took a life of its own through the actors in some way. One thing I did find interesting was that there's very little that Leonard Horn has even said about the film. I've literally found one sentence that he says about this film. He says, being my first film, I did not want my direction showing as simplicity is the keynote. I presented the story so that the viewers can feel that they are sitting in their living room looking at Stanley and his friends through the window. And I think what's interesting about that is that he's kind of taking a voyeuristic perspective, which is very similar to De Palma. 
And you have that scene where, he, you know, when the Sweet Gingerbread Man song comes on, where he shoots outside the window in a similar way that maybe De Palma would have shot, which is that sort of voyeuristic shot of Stanley kissing and making love with Kathy through the window. You know, I think Leonard Horn had this sort of voyeuristic kind of perspective and just kind of allowed the, the actors to maybe kind of take over a little bit. But from what I, everything that I've gathered, there was really no relatability and that Leonard Horn really couldn't relate to people and didn't really, wasn't very specific about what he wanted, really. But I mean, uh, often leaving it to, I guess, Bert Harris, who was, who was the AD, to kind of uh, come up with occasionally with more of the... Uh, Specificities that uh, that either the actors needed or the, or the camera crew did, uh, which I think uh, in that one interview uh, in After Dark, that uh, uh, Johnson uh, and uh, Michael Greer kind of intimate a little bit, or they they kind of insinuate that, that that's the you know, the case with uh, with Bert Harris and with uh, with Horn. Uh, but I mean, he only went on to do one more uh, theatrical feature. Uh, it's uh, Quirky with Robert Blake, which you can kind of like. Even though I haven't seen that film, I can kind of imagine what it's like in my head, you know, just based on the title and the actor. But it's very it's curious. A, it's an okay film. Yeah, it's all yeah, right. It's okay. It's not super memorable, but it's okay. That was another one on my want list for a long time, so it took me a bit to finally track that one down. <laughs> now on uh, Warner Archive, which uh, this one isn't. I just want to be very clear with both of you guys, and and especially with the audience. There are a lot of things that I dislike about this movie, but I don't want this to be sitting in a vault someplace. I totally agree with you guys that this needs to be out there. Why isn't this out here? You know, the MGM has its own archive label. There you go. There's a great spot for it. Or, you know, all of these scenes that you're talking about that should have been in there, at least have them as deleted scenes available someplace. I mean, this movie is getting no love other than from a handful of people. And I'm talking to two of them. And I want this movie to be available for other people to see and to experience because I think that every film needs to be preserved and out there and available, whether you like it or not, at least be able to have that option of seeing this. And to your guys' point, this is this counterculture film. This is a very tumultuous time in U.S. history, and I really think that more people need to look at this and put it into context of what was going on with counterculture films be it from MGM or from an independent studio, be it from Paul Morrissey or from Leonard Horn. Why aren't we not able to see this movie? I want this available for folks. It's been my mission. I mean, I even got it screened at Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn because I want nothing more than to celebrate this film and discuss it. And even if people don't like it, that's okay too. I mean, it's, it's just there to be kind of, you know, dissected and, and looked at. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate in, in meeting a handful of people like, you know, like I was saying, I've shown through the years certain friends of mine in this film. And it's been this amazing kind of group effort to help kind of bring some notice to this film. I have a friend um, named Daniel Collis who's in a band called the Phenomenal Handclap Band. And he was very instrumental. I mean, he went to a Joe Bob Briggs screening at Alamo Draft House. And afterwards said, hey, listen, do you, do you want to host the Magic Garden Stanley Sweetheart? My friend has a 35 millimeter print of it. So it's, it's been this, just this great, you know, project to like, that has brought a lot of people together and, and people that have an interest to see this film, even just on like a, 
on a cultural level or of, of seeing New York in 1969 at the kind of the end of the 60s. And this film is also has not only, you know, though Andy Warhol, you know, was a no show in the film, you have minor, you know, little appearances of people like Candy Darling, Joe D'Alessandro, Jerry Miller, like Andy Warhol factory types that were, you know, would pop up. I think they were supposed to be part of a bigger scene, the, the deleted fantasy sequence. But if you look carefully, you can see these these actors just making these little appearances. And I think just between, you know, the World Trade Center, the Warhol, the Velvet Underground cover as a rolling paper tray. I mean, this world of, of New York of the late 60s, it's it's really captured in this film. You know, even if this film is flawed, it, it still holds something of that culture that very few films do. Jared, didn't uh, Joe Bob Briggs at that at, at that Alamo sh- uh, showing? He kind of was maybe a little cheeky at first about the film when he was introing it. Yeah, that, I mean, I don't. It was kind I'm of. Not, I'm not, you know. Yeah, I think he he felt a little bit differently about it after the screening because, I mean, well, I think it was just different to also see to experience the film on a big screen through a 35 millimeter print i mean i think that alone could maybe win over a few members of the audience just because of the experience of seeing it not on a cruddy tnt bootleg you know like this is a, a nice print of it and so i think you know he was won over a little bit about it but yeah i mean everybody i think kind of approaches this film with this oh this bad film this this film that nobody liked or this bomb i don't know i guess i'm trying to change the course of opinion about this film a little bit and for people to maybe see it a little bit differently. You know, I also want to pin, uh, you know, I know, you know, a lot of people have felt like that Don Johnson was sort of miscast. I know Robert Westbrook wasn't a fan of the casting of Don Johnson, but part of his legacy is maybe what's also kept a little bit of this title alive in, in the public conscience on some level. And I just want to point out that I, I, I'm one of the fans of his performance of this film. And I, I think he had a very distinct position in film at the time of, of being kind of the, the manet idol of the counterculture world. I mean, he was in Zachariah, Herod Experiment, and even his science fiction movie, A Boy and His Dog, has got to be one of the weirdest science fiction films. So he was kind of like the poster boy of this kind of period. And, and so I see him as also kind of like a, a, a style icon of the time. And a lot, I know a lot of people appropriate that to a more in Miami Vice. But when I see his early career, I, I kind of see this hipster actor who's got this sort of fashion sense that um, he's kind of carried with him his whole career. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of his performance in this film. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, you'll hear from writer Robert Westbrook. After that, you'll hear from actress Linda Gillen. And last but not least, you'll hear from actor Brandon Maggart. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Shake Shake Mix comes in two new soda fountain flavors. Flippy new chocolate fudge flavored great shakes and wild new strawberry flavored great shakes. Both turn milk into a real thick shake. So thick it stands up to a straw. Great shake. It's so creamy, thick and creamy. Any place can be a soda fountain now. With great shakes and new great shakes. If you want your own. 
It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, right? He's, he's in a yeah, million Yeah, the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes has a mustache. Yeah, was, that, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen it, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. You have the most fascinating origin story, to to use a uh, uh, superhero term. Can you uh, elucidate a little bit for my listeners as far as you growing up and kind of how you were fated to be a writer? I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, in Hollywood, in the in a show business family. Uh, my mother was a writer, but not um, you know she was a Hollywood gossip columnist, uh, Sheila Graham. And uh, today she's mostly remembered as being the last girlfriend of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And they lived together for three and a half years in the late 1930s. And Fitzgerald died in my mother's Hollywood apartment on uh, in the winter solstice of uh, 1940. So I, I grew up really, um, you know, I, I was born five years later. And in 1945, and my mother was just determined that I'd be a writer, you know, that uh, I somehow follow in the footsteps of uh, of Fitzgerald, you know, her her fallen hero. And and actually, you know, I mean, that's the sort of thing that can turn out badly, I think, when either one of your parents wants you to do something. But in my case, it really kind of suited my personality. 
I've rebelled against it uh, from time to time, but I've, I had my first book actually published when I was 17. I wrote, I went um, on a student trip to the Soviet Union back in, in the early 1960s when it was still, you know, the Soviet Union, Union was uh, the, you know, a communist, you know, a country. It was the enemy. And, uh, and this is, you know, it was, it was a, a trip arranged by something called the Experiment of International Living. And we worked on a collective farm, and it was really kind of a fascinating six-week trip there. I went home and uh, uh, sold the idea to J.P. Putnam and Sons, and uh, you know, got an advance and, and and wrote a book that was eventually called Journey Behind the Iron Curtain, uh, which my mother actually helped me with a, a lot because at the, at that age I probably wouldn't have either had the patience or the skill to get this book together. But anyway, then I didn't write again until. I was 23, and uh, I was actually kind of stranded in Rome. I'd, I'd gone to Rome to work as a as a production assistant, like a basically a third assistant director on a movie uh, that was made uh, that was directed by Sidney Lumet. So it was called The Appointment, and it starred uh, Omar Sharif and Anouké May. And it was actually it, it was a uh, it should have been a great movie. It had a wonderful script by by the author James Salter, but somehow. The producer, Marty Pohl, kind of screwed it up. I'm not sure what he did to it, but it never really had a wide theatrical release, uh, even though you know, lots of really talented people were connected with this project. The producer, Marty Pohl, actually became a friend of mine, and uh, throughout the, the filming, we'd talk about various projects and things. And, and I told him that, that I was thinking of writing a, a book about my college experiences at Columbia, and he said, "Yes, this is you know this is 1968, and write that book, and I'll make it. I'll turn it into a movie. We'll make a movie of it." And and so that's the the origin of uh, the Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart was uh, you know talking with uh, Marty Pohl, the, the producer. Um, then it, when the movie was over, he went back to the states. I stayed in Rome, and I wrote the book. And I was kind of you know I didn't I was totally impoverished until money started coming in when I, when I actually got an, got an advance from um, Crown, actually, and, and, and Bantam Books both wanted to, to, wanted to buy the, you know, wanted to publish the book. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was able to, to sell the whole thing on 100 pages. I mean, I thought being a writer was going to be easy. You know, I had 100 pages of this book, and I had a movie deal, hardcover, softcover, and soon I was kind of, you know, uh, you know, being well supported in Rome, which was actually in 1968 was a very nice place to to live and write a book. Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you're writing this always under the assumption that this is going to be a movie. Did that change the way that you wrote it? Yes and no. I mean, I just, you know, I wrote that whole book basically in three or four months. It just came pouring out. Of you know, it was semi-autobiographical. I mean, I changed, you know, I kind of put things together in in, in, in different ways and changed a lot of names. But uh, my last year at Columbia uh, uh, was 1967, and it was just you know a very chaotic year. Uh, that was a year when all the protests were starting. And, uh, you know, it was just really wild and it wasn't a, it wasn't a great year to actually get a real education. I have to say we, it was, everything was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, and revolution. And, uh, it was a fascinating time and I was just trying to absorb it all. And something, you know, I, I left New York and never, I never finished at Columbia after my third year, I just 
so exhausted by everything that was going on uh, and got involved in, in working in the movies in, in, in Rome. And uh, I really just, you know, I, I, originally I thought I was going to go back and finish my degree, but it was just so much more fun, you know, being in Rome and, you know, I met Fellini, I, I met meeting all kinds of fascinating people. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, why, why go back to, to that crazy situation in, in, in college? I wrote the book very quickly and um, as a novel. And then uh, Marty brought me back to Los Angeles and uh, put me in an apartment on, on Sunset Boulevard and, and uh, a place called the Sunset Towers where a lot of writers and actors lived. And uh, that's when, when the problems began. I mean, I found it really hard to write, uh, write the screenplay. It was much easier for me to write the novel. And the screenplay was, well, first of all, my first shock was that, that it was really a group, a group project that, that seemed to change like, you know, it was like, like water, like the surface of water, kind of, you know, it was, nothing was solid. I'd write a scene, show it to Marty, and he would say, fabulous, I really love this. And then, you know, a day later, he said, well, I just showed it to someone at MGM. MGM was, uh, you know, it was, was going to produce this. And, you know, they were all, all the kind of big shots up there. And I, I'm not even sure exactly who saw it. But they'd say, no, they don't, they don't like this after all. You, you know, you have to change this. Um, and he'd give me some ideas. And, uh, and so I'd be off the next day rewriting the scene. And this would go on and on where he'd say, oh, fabulous, I love this. And then, then no, no. Someone up there said, no, can't do this. Uh, and, you know, it really was hard for me to work that way. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only writer that's found this, by the way. Of course, this is, a, this is kind of a classic situation, um, trying to deal with the ever-changing face of, of insecure Hollywood people who don't really know what they want, but know that they want to make a lot of money and they want, to, want something that everyone's going to like, but, you know, but no one specifically knows what that is. So, you know, and it went all the way through that to the, until the movie was actually, you know, shot and made. And then they had open screenings on, uh, on Sunset Boulevard, or maybe it's Hollywood Boulevard, but some, some theater where they would give the, the audience a questionnaire to fill out. And, you know, and, and according to who liked what and who didn't like, you know, this and, you know, who didn't like that, then they would actually recut it, you know, according to those returned questionnaires. So anyway, I had a very hard time with this. And I really basically left the movie industry at that point. I kind of married the actress who was originally going to play uh, the role of Kathy in, in, the, in the film. Uh, Katie Heflin, whose father was uh, Van Heflin. Katie actually got fired during the, the making of the film because she and Don Johnson really didn't gel. Uh, she, for one, she was a little bit uh, older than Don Johnson, and in the film, in, in, the, in the story, it was uh, a point was made that she was supposed to be a young, innocent girl who was, you know, and, and Stanley. Uh, sweetheart, uh, played by Don Johnson, was supposed to be the, you know, the older man. So, so it didn't look right. It wasn't right. And uh, Katie was 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 actually fired. And uh, an actress named uh, Diane Hull was brought in to play that part instead. 
And so anyway, both Katie and I were pretty disgusted at this point. We're, we're, we're idealistic. We thought, you know, I, I realized we were both 23 years old and, and a bit privileged and thought, oh, it, you know, why are people giving us a hard time? You know, I mean, now I realize that it, we actually probably had it pretty easy for, for, for what goes on in Hollywood. But uh, we just took off. We moved up into the Redwoods and the Santa Cruz Mountains and, uh, and you know, just kind of dropped out which was fun. So really, I did not end up having that much to do with the, with the actual production of, of Stanley Sweetheart. I mean, I wrote the screenplay, finally. Uh, Leonard Horn was hired to do the directing. Uh, he was, uh, did, had, was someone who had done a lot of television. He had done a lot of Mission Impossibles and uh, uh, you know, the original TV series and, and, and things like that. It was a successful television director, but this was his first film. And he just improvised a lot, you know. I mean, a lot of things ended up in in that movie that I that didn't come from me anyway, you know. I just rewatched the movie yesterday. Did they ever say what the Magic Garden is? Well, it was kind of a a, um, a, a psychic, a psychological. The yeah, the drugs, the music, the uh, the 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 plethora of possibilities. That, that that existed at that time and in the late 60s i mean everything was really just exploding with possibilities and and it uh, it wasn't it's was a very interesting time to be a young person and uh um you know the, you know everything seemed possible you know you could have as much sex as he wanted you could have music you could which for my hero stanley was a little bit more than he could cope with <laughs> but uh so, so the Magic Garden really was, uh, you know, I kind of meant it, meant it in a somewhat psychedelic way, but it, it, but in a way, it was kind of larger than that. As I say, it was just the the cornucopia of uh, of, of everything going on right then. Well, Stanley is a filmmaker, an underground filmmaker, and you were working in films. I'm curious, did you have ambition to become a filmmaker yourself? Yes, I did. Yes. Uh, at that time, when I was in Columbia, I, I had a 16 millimeter Bolex camera and I was going around everywhere trying to make films and splice them together. And, you know, I, I just I, I really, really loved movies. And of course, you know, it, it was the, the 60s were, were a great time. For, for movies, especially in, in, in New York and, and well, in other places too. But in New York, there, there were, there were lots of movie theaters that showed art films. You know, I just went almost every night uh, to the New Yorker and the Thalia. And there was a few other theaters like that, that were showing all the Truffaut films and Fellini and, you know, um, uh, Godard. And it was just, you know, so I thought this was the most exciting art form going and that's why i went to europe and i got a job as a you know i got several jobs as assistant you know third assistant directors which is basically you know you kind of carry coffee around and uh, knock on people's doors on a number of films i worked on a western in uh that was shot in spain that's supposed to be about Pancha Villa. Uh, Yul Brynner playing Pancha Villa and Robert Mitchum. Uh, and uh, we shot this in, in, in Spain, actually, though it was supposed to be Mexico. And it's, it's one of the kind of, you know, the Westerns, you know, that were being shot, the American Westerns that, that were being shot um, either in Italy or, or Spain at that time. And it was, it was fun. It's really interesting. And uh, I love to see, I mean, Robert Mitchum was a fascinating man to see up close. 
and uh, I liked him a lot, actually. And, uh, and then I ended up, uh, as I say, going to Rome and working for Marty Pohl. And that's when, when my life changed. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I went from third assistant director to writing the screenplay. And it was really like, I, I don't think I was really quite prepared for it, for how difficult it is to actually survive in, in this, in this atmosphere. You know, um, I had an idealistic, you know, picture of it. It was actually really quite difficult. It wasn't really quite me. Someone once said that to succeed in the movie industry, you have to be a ship with a very strong bow. Actually, it's Iris Murdoch, the novelist who wrote that. And, you know, I didn't have that kind of bow to really, you know, I was, I was a bit more dreamy, kind of uh, uh, poetic sort of person who who's actually it was much better for me to be to, you know to live off in the woods and be a novelist which is you know how I've, how I've continued with my life I've uh, I've written quite a few books after after Stanley Sweetheart Well yeah you must have been so disillusioned afterwards Well well I was I mean I was kind of fed up I mean I just uh it just seemed um you know I, I, to tell the truth I, I really did not like the movie. I mean, I, uh, and, and I'm, a, I'm not even that sure about the book. I mean, the, the book was very honest. I wrote the book. Uh, it, it really came from my heart. Um, and I look at it now and I, you know, it embarrasses me to read, read, you know, what I wrote 50 years ago. I mean, I'm sure a lot of, of writers feel the same thing, but I'll, you know, I stand by the book as being, you know, really, you know, a very honest attempt to put down my experience. Whereas the movie, I don't know, it got really kind of silly, I thought. And it, it, it never, you know, I mean, it's funny, Andy Warhol, you know, has been quoted as saying that it was the best movie about the counterculture uh, of, the, of, the, of the late 1960s. Um, and, um, you know, I really, you know, love, and I'm still, you know, I, I love some of the people involved. I'm still in touch with Linda Gillum, who was uh, played one of the one of the one of the uh, one of the girls in the, in the picture, um, and uh, and I remained friends with Marty Pohl actually until he died. Uh, no, it, it wasn't a very good movie by by my standards. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think it's interesting that people are kind of rediscovering it, and, and I, I guess it had something. You know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you saw it yesterday. So what did you think? I mean, <laughs> how does it measure up? Well, it feels like it sticks to your novel really closely during the first part of it. And then it starts to stray. And once it starts to stray, that's where I feel it starts to fall down a little bit. Well, Lenny Horn, the director, I mean, uh, I, I know at least in several scenes, he just told the actors, Don Johnson and and Linda, you know, uh, uh, go smoke a joint somewhere and just kind of improvise. That can work. That kind of approach, you know, uh, especially if the actors have some degree of self discipline. But I don't think it quite worked in, in that in that situation. Well, yeah, some, so many of them were so young at that point. I don't think that they had the the seasoning to possibly be able to get away with that right 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 no we were all very young and i was certainly very young too i mean uh you know i was 23 years old and uh you know i didn't quite know what hit me you know all of a sudden you know writing this mgm movie and seeing it uh you know it was it was it was kind of it was a big life-changing event for me up until that point, I really thought that that filmmaking was was what I wanted to do and 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 that really I realized 
you know, when it gets right down to the really nitty gritty of, of, of showing up every day and really doing this and working with a bunch of people that it's just not quite my personality, you know, that I really, uh, that, that, that being, being a novelist really was what suited me. And, and, and so I really did, you know, decide on a really different course. And even now, I mean, a number, you know, mostly in my adult life, I've written uh, several, several mystery series, um, and I've had movie options on them. Um, Ted Danson, the actor, uh, uh, optioned four of my books at one point. And so I'd go to Hollywood and have these meetings. And, and even those, you know, it just didn't really quite suit me. So, uh, you know, I, I live in New Mexico, far away from all that, and um, I, I'm, I, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> when did you start writing again after that? And and looking at the list on your your site, it looks like there's this huge gap between seventy and eighty six. You must have still been writing at that point. Yeah, no, there is a huge gap, and that's after Stanley Sweetheart. I wrote a novel that was turned down by every publishing house in New York. I mean, it was just uh, a crazy hodgepodge of, of a novel that deserved to be turned down. I mean, I, my head was just spinning from all the stuff. And, 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 you know, back then I was, that was my psychedelic time. I, I was living in London for a while with my first wife and we were just taking a lot of LSD and it was just, you know, it was very crazy. This book kind of reflected, you know, just, you know, how crazy it was. And, and I just thought, no, I mean, I'm really, I, I, I'm going to stop. So actually I stopped and started, I started studying uh, piano, uh, jazz piano. I, I returned, I was living uh, outside of San Francisco then in, in Marin County and I'd drive into San Francisco, and I had a, I had a piano teacher, and uh, I studied really very seriously for uh, for quite a number of years, and um, and finally, but decided that I was going to go. Uh, my wife and I decided we'd take our family and go live in Hawaii. I was going to join a band. There are a lot more possibilities to actually uh, get in a band and perform and make money uh, in Waikiki than, uh, you know, in Marin County, where I was, I was living actually in Point Reyes, which is on, on the coast. And there, there just weren't, you know, very many kind of paying possibilities for music, you know, where I was. So I went, I got in, into a top 40 band. I was a keyboard player. And, you know, one night in Waikiki, I was playing in, in some club, some place called the Jolly Roger. And there were about five people in the joint. It was like two o'clock in the morning. And, and I realized, well, this really isn't for me either. You know, um, that, that again, there are some people who do very well in these kind of top 40 bands and, 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 it, and it really suits them. But it actually wasn't really the kind of music I, I wanted to play. And the whole reality of being in a bar late at night with just a few drunk people in it, you know, I realized, hmm, this doesn't really kind of work, work for me either. So I so so the next day I actually sat down and started uh, my first mystery. It's called I called it the left-handed policeman. And again, it just came ripping out. It's like you know, after not writing for almost 15 years, I wrote this book in three months. And uh, again, I sold it uh, uh, hardcover, softcover, just. You know, it just, for some reason, writing opened up for me and, and music really didn't. You know, I, 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 again, uh, I didn't really have the kind of public personality uh, to thrive, uh, you know, as a performer. You know, so I kind of learned basically, you know, who am I? Well, I'm a writer, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what kind of worked for me, you know, much better. 
not only was it one left-handed policeman, but then you created two more, like the two subsequent years. That must have been quite a, a ride for you. No, I, I kept going with this one series, and then I stopped. I did it. Uh, um, my mother, uh, Sheila Graham, died in 1988, and I, I inherited all her papers. And I realized that she had quite a fascinating story. I mean, uh, her uh, actually, she had written her own autobiography in 1958 that was called Beloved Infidel. And, and it was about her uh, affair with, with Scott Fitzgerald, which was a very stormy romance. And it was, that was made into a movie with Gregory Peck playing Scott Fitzgerald and Deborah Carr playing my mother. But it really was not the real story. I mean, it, it was uh, totally sentimentalized, and there are a lot of uh, huge inaccuracies and a lot of things my mother wasn't quite willing to talk about uh, in 1958. I mean, a lot of what really happened between uh, my mother and Fitzgerald was set against a background that was very kind of sexually charged and also a lot of leftist politics. I mean, they met, uh, their first date was at a, uh, a, a union meeting to, to help form the Screenwriters Guild. I mean, there was a lot in the 30s in Hollywood. There was a huge surge of, of leftist politics. And, and neither of these things could really be talked about in the late 1950s. So I looked at all this, and I put together a new biography, really kind of almost a, an anatomy of a love affair between my mother and Scott Fitzgerald, and, and uh, I called this Intimate Lies, and that and Harper Collins published that in 1995, and uh, and I really enjoyed writing that. It was kind of a way for me to kind of uh, absorb, you know, the death of my mother and really kind of you think about her a little bit. Part of the reason I was a bit obsessed with trying to figure her out was that after she died, my sister and I discovered that we were only half siblings. That actually. Wendy, my older sister's biological father, came forward, a well-known uh, philosopher and uh, British philosopher, A.J. Eyre. He was a, a, um, a Sir A.J. Eyre, who we knew as Freddie, Uncle Freddie. But he, he, it turned out that he, he was my sister's real father, that my mother had kept this a secret uh, uh, you know, until it came out after her death, and that According to Freddie's wife uh, and some other people I spoke with, that my real father was not actually this this English businessman Trevor Westbrook, uh, who she married when she was pregnant, basically with with my sister Wendy, but actually the actor uh, Robert Taylor. Uh, my mother had a colorful life, and, uh, uh, and and I tried to capture this in in, my, in intimate lies. You know, the book I wrote about her, and I still continue to think that was really really my best book because it's the best story. I mean, Scott Fitzgerald was a very interesting man. So anyway, I enjoyed that. And then when I was done with that, I, I started writing um, a mystery series set in New Mexico. Uh, it's a bit, a bit of, a, of a quirky series, but I wrote uh, four books for Penguin. You know, it's a big company. Um, they, they hardly knew I was alive, and they didn't. You know, they didn't do very well. They, they people, a few people have found them. They seemed to like them. So that series kind of died for a while, and then I was contacted by uh, by a small publishing house from Florida, a company called Speaking Volumes, and it was a guy who loved these books and said, "I want to I want to republish all your old books." And, and he did. He, he, put, he put all my old books, ex except Stanley Sweetheart. That is not online. But all my old, old, old books are now 
online. They've been, you know, uh, uh, and the New Mexico series is doing so well that I'm actually, uh, I've written two more new books uh, to add to the series. And, I, and right now I'm working on a third. I didn't realize until I was doing research on you that I had read another book of yours unknowingly years ago when I was stuck on a camping trip and ran out of things to read. My my wife ran up to uh, a Walmart and came back and she gave me the novelization of Insomnia. Yeah, yeah. Those were, I mean, I'm not, I don't really consider those my books because I was given, this was, you, you know, I mean, as a mid-list author, I mean, I was struggling to actually make a living. And uh, my editor at Signet happened to, to, to have this gig where uh, movie studios would send him a script and then he would hire someone to turn the script into a, a novel or a novelization, as they called it. Uh, you know, I did that. Uh, you know, I, I, I generally had about three weeks to write these books. So I, I'd have to take the dialogue. I mean, I couldn't change anything. I couldn't change the story. I had to use the dialogue. But I, I basically, I took a movie script and turned them into chapters and did the, the visualizations describing, you know, the scene, what things looked like and what, and, you know, give the characters some sort of inner life, you know, what they were thinking when they said certain things. And I hadn't actually seen these movies because they were, they had not yet been released. If I was lucky, I'd get some photographs and stills so I'd have some idea of what things were supposed to look like. This was just, it was a gig. It was kind of fascinating. It was, it was, you know, I learned a lot from doing this. I learned a lot about dialogue, actually. Uh, I think I became a much better dialogue writer uh, by doing this. But it's one of the things I did just simply to kind of pay my bills because, I mean, I was making, you know, I mean, I could have made more money as a dishwasher than, than I was making as a novelist at this point. The other thing I did is I did some ghostwriting. I actually wrote eight mystery novels for the TV entertainer Steve Allen. Uh, these were uh, Steve and Jane novels. Uh, Steve Allen and his wife, Jane Meadows, are real characters in these books. And I was told, these are, these are published, God, I forgot, uh, Kensington Books. Uh, the publisher called me into their office in New York, and, and they said for the first one, you know, I, I want you to set Steve and Jane in, in a mystery. They're giving, a, they are hosting a game show, and one of the contestants drops down dead. And, and, and the publisher in this big New York office has said, I want him to be killed by poisoned Cajun vodka. Okay, and I sat back, okay. And he said, uh, and, and take it from there, just finish it. No, so you know, uh, I, I was given this assignment, and uh, you know, again, I had like six weeks to do this book. But I thought, well, okay, you know, it paid well. And again, I thought, this is going to be an incredible learning experience. And it really actually was. And I ended up, uh, ended up writing eight of these things. Well, actually seven, because at the very end, I was working on my book about Scott Fitzgerald, about uh, Intimate Lies, and I didn't really have time to write the eight. So, so my wife, actually, my wife, Gail, wrote, wrote the last one. It was called Murder in Hawaii. And I kind of oversaw it a little bit. But, uh, you know, she was like a ghost of a ghost. I did. Just Steve Allen cheerfully put his name on, on on these books and even dedicated them to his grandchildren and things. Uh, and he changed a few things. It's actually a little bit frustrating because he had a way of kind of putting what he called mini essays right in the middle, right just, just before a murder might be committed. He would stop and say, this reminds me of uh, something that happened to me in Hollywood and, and blah, 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 and go off. Completely forget the you know uh, you know the storyline, and I try to kind of you know uh, you know say you know Steve, 
you know, we should just kind of keep going with it. With it. This is, these are murder mysteries, you know, but uh, it, it was a little bit you know, challenging um, uh, to do these books, but it was kind of fun. And again, I feel, you know, I've spent a long lifetime learning how to, how to write books and, uh, and it's all, it's all being very, I'm grateful for it all. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the whole novelization process because some people will stick very close to the text. Others can go so far afield that it is almost a completely different work altogether. Or some people can go on these strange tangents where it's just like, what is happening? Was this in the script or where is this coming from? And it's just a, a, a wonderful mishmash of so many different styles and all being sold under, you know, the posters of these films. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's great that you found insomnia because uh, I've never really known you know, who, you know, ended up reading these, these books, these novelizations. I mean, I, I would, I would think going to the movie would be, you know, much more satisfying. So, you know, I finally, I finally saw Insomnia, and it was an interesting movie with Al Pacino and uh, uh, Robin Williams. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. You know, I still haven't seen the movie. I've only read your novelization. Okay. Well, if you ever catch it, and actually, this was originally, believe it or not, a Swedish movie, and then this was the Robin Williams Al Pacino version was, you know, taken from that. That particular story went through a lot of changes. You said um, what you're working on now, and I'm I'm curious when the next one is out. I had a new mystery come out uh, three weeks ago. It's called Blue Moon, and uh, you know you will find it online. Uh, uh, actually, I, I didn't realize that there's actually a Lee Childs book called Blue Moon, which I didn't realize when I uh, you know thought of my title. Uh, and it, it, these stories take place in New Mexico. I, I have a Native American hero named Howard Moondeer, and he works with a blind detective, an uh, ex-cop, and uh, they're a little bit quirky, and they go, and they solve these, these weird cases. Blue Moon takes on the kind of the UFO part of New Mexico. You know, we have you know, Roswell and, and, and Aztec. I mean, supposedly flying saucers visit New Mexico from time to time. And this is kind of part of the, the land of enchantment. You know, it's a little bit, gets a little bit too enchanted. And so I, 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 I set this, this whole story about a kind of a fake UFO sighting that, uh, that's really kind of a, it's a scam with, with some money at stake and, uh, and there's, there's a murder and, you know, I, I really have fun with these books and they, they, they seem to do well. Well, Mr. Westbrook, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. Well, I'm glad it's, it's fun to, to revisit the old days, but I'm glad to be living in the present too, except, you know, I, w- I wouldn't mind if the present was a little bit safer right now, but, uh, yeah. When you least expect it When you wanted it so badly Who'd expect you to reject it? Well, it's funny how it happens But it really doesn't matter If that's how it is, that's how it has to be For a long time and still, I think Stanley Sweetheart is really tough to see Which is kind of unfortunate I always knew that someday People would say, I don't know if it's a good, I'm not objective at all about that film because it 
you know, dovetails with too many, too many storylines in my own life. But uh, I always thought someday people will look back on that film and say, you know, you did a good job. I originally was up for the part of Kathy. Well, I put myself up for the part of Kathy. I had no idea what the script or the book was about. All I knew is that at MGM, they were looking for young actresses and actors for this film. That's all I knew. I knew that it was part of a girl. She went to college and she looked good riding horses. That was Bob's description. And she was very straight, shy, and what have you. Didn't know anything about sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. And I thought, well, gee, those are the things I usually have played before. I could do this. And I asked my agent to submit me for it. She didn't know the script either. And she said, no, you're not right for it. I happened to be at MGM that day on an audition for something else. So I already had permission to be on the lot. At the time, I was living in Laurel Canyon. There was a house of guys down the street. They were all like singers, musicians, whatever. But we all paid the bills by painting houses, <laughs> except Joe Bryce. Joe Bryce was in hair. And so, and Joe Bryce was, you know, the big singer. But the rest of us were all like scrambling. I lived down the road from Danny and Joe Bryce and everybody. And they said, what are you doing? I said, I've got this audition tomorrow. Uh, one is for a TV show and it's a camp counselor. It was a series called Then Came Bronson with Michael Parks. But the other thing is a movie and it's this straight girl. Uh, who comes to New York and she doesn't know about, you know, drugs or anything like that. And they said, well, what are you going to wear? And I showed them the outfit and they said, don't do that. And they gave me this crate. Danny gave me some of his beads and different stuff. And they said, wear that outfit when you walk in to the thing. I said, I'm going for like a real conservative preppy. And they said, don't dress like that. Just go like that. You know, or I was already sneaking into the audition. If you interview enough actors, you'll realize most actors have to sneak into auditions to get jobs because no one ever thinks they're right for the part. So anyway, I went to the Ben King Bronson thing, read the script. Thank you very much. You know, we'll be in touch. And I walked over to the other building to audition for that. And the woman said, well, your name isn't on the list here. And I said, well, it must be because the guard at the gate let me in. Oh, okay. And I sat down and I thought, and there were all these very preppy-looking girls sitting around me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to kill Danny and Joe Bryce when I go back. This is really, I'm, you know. And they said, well, you can go in. And it was Leonard Horn, the director. There was no casting price. It was just Leonard. And I walked in. And I thought, you know, I have already blown this audition. I'm not supposed to be here. My agent's right. I'm not right for it. So I just went in. And we met. It was a great energy between us. And then he disappeared. You know, I didn't hear from him. The place I was staying at in Laurel Canyon, the people I was subletting from were moving away. I mean, it became one of those whole life-changing things. There was a guy who was a casting person who, of course, never hired me for anything. Got a call. He came over to my place and he said, I got this call from this director in New York. And they said, they're trying to find an actress named Linda Gillen. And they can't find her because at that time my agent didn't want me anymore. You couldn't find me. It wasn't Facebook or anything. And he says, no, I live with her. We didn't live together. We lived in the same compound. That's how I got the part. Uh, oh, and it wasn't for Kathy. It was for the other part. And I was the first one cast in it. Leonard said, 
this is who I want. And I thought, well, who is this other character? And so I eventually got a copy of the book and read it. And I thought, that's interesting. But I had, you know, no idea. And uh, Katie Heflin was the original Kathy. So it was uh, Katie and I. And they, and then Don and Michael hadn't been cast or Holly. They couldn't. I mean, I did the screen tests in California with a bunch of actors. And then I flew to New York and I did screen tests with a bunch of other actors. And they still couldn't find anyone. And Marty Pohl, the producer, went to back to L.A. And he saw Fortune and Men's Eyes. And that's how we saw Don and Michael. And then Michael recommended Holly. So how do you prepare for a role like Barbara slash Shane? I had no idea. I was terrified because I had just turned 20 and I grew up in New York in a very working class family. My father worked in sweatshops and my mother was a housewife until things got really tough. And then she worked as a saleswoman in the department store. So I had no training. I did a lot of commercials because I met a manager and she said, you dye your hair red and we'll make a fortune. It wasn't a fortune, but I made a lot of money. I did the Great Shakes commercial. I don't know if you know that one. It became a very famous commercial in the late 60s because everybody did the soundtrack. Dusty Springfield and... I forget who it was, but everybody had done that. So I had done that where I played this girl who... Uh, we shot her for three days in Oyster Bay who, you know, was at a party in the life of the party. I mean, I was like a geek in high school. I never went to a prom or to a dance or had a boyfriend. And here I am in commercials. So it was like living a fantasy life. Do you know what I mean? It's fabulous because everybody's doing your hair and your makeup and giving you outfits you could never afford to buy. I was doing a lot of that, and I got hired for the producers, that Mel Brooks thing. I didn't have anything to do in it. I played the saxophone. It was just one of those freak things. Some woman who was casting it said, hey, you know, I went up to my managers to get um, some uh, money to pay bills. This casting woman was saying, she says, you'd be right for this movie I'm doing with Mel Brooks. I don't know, didn't know who Mel Brooks was, but I showed up and we shot the film. Back to your question, how do you prepare for it? I was terrified. It's one thing to dream about going to Hollywood and getting a lead in a movie, which basically that was a co-lead, let's put it that way, in Stanley Sweetheart, because uh, I grew up fantasizing about wanting to do that, you know, being at MGM, because uh, I had the lion at the beginning. When I would show up for school, they say, well, you have to do something with your life, and the choices was a hairdresser or um, a stenographer, and then eventually you get married and have a lot of children. You know, I, I didn't come from a background where a college education was on the horizon for me or even affordable. So none of those options were open. So what I did was daydream about being a movie star. And why not? I went to NYU School of the Arts. I got in. I don't know how. I didn't get in on my academic record. I got in on the audition. And a friend of mine went back out to California because that's where she was from. She was in school with me, with Jeannie Berlin. So uh, she said, oh, you ought to come to California. There's plenty of work out here. So I said, okay, I'll go there. Uh, you know, and I had some money from doing uh, the commercials. And the uh, I worked on soap operas, too. But to me, it was real um, hard scrabble learning how to act. I mean, how hard could it be? I had to be a teenager. 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there was no inner motivation or whatever you want to call it. I had no idea. I just remember being terrified because it was one thing to dream about having a lead in a film, and it was another thing to all of a sudden be put in that position where all of a sudden people are walking around you, interviewing you, and you're being written up in the gossip columns. Do you know what I mean? You just get thrown into this thing all of a sudden, and it was like I just wanted to act <laughs> and escape um, what was could have been my future as a hairdresser or a typist or whatever. So there really was no preparation. Um, I remember most people thought I was the character, a drug-taking, polysexual, insane person. And I've been married to the same guy for well over 30 years. We live in a small house. You know, I mean, it's very boring life. But it was interesting after doing Stanley's where you had all the people who thought that I was. And I remember a major uh, agent at a big agency called me. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, they see my talent. You know, I mean, now, you do a movie like Stanley Sweetheart Tanked. And that's like worse than having, you know, the coronavirus if you're in California. Nobody wants to know from you. So I was like back at ground zero again. I got this call from Hotshot Agent in Beverly Hills. So I go in to meet him and uh, hold all calls, closes the door, sits on the edge of his desk. And, How are you? I love you. I love you. Da, 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 da. Do you know where I can get some drugs? And I said, What? I said, what do you know? He says, come on. I'm not going to tell anybody. It was interesting. I can't say I'm a virgin to drug take. I've certainly tried them. It's just not my thing. You know, I mean, it's just not for me. But it was just like, oh, man. And then consequently, anybody I'd meet would be like, you want to go get high? And I'd go, no, I don't want to get high. That was the aftermath of doing something like that. And interestingly enough, I did a Laverne Shirley. I played Amy Babish, the landlady's daughter with Down syndrome. This is many years after Stanley Sweetheart. Go to meet the head of casting in Century City. I sit there and he says, I, I had this note that I had to meet you. I had to meet you. And I said, well, great. I'm glad you wanted to meet me. And he was looking through his things. He said, oh, right. You played Amy Babish. Yes. He thought I was retarded. I mean, I guess that's a compliment in a way this is wonderful you know and because then there was a whole spate of down syndrome stories after that everybody did a down syndrome story do you know what i mean they got emmys and what have you and they will <laughs> this in fact tv guide had done an editorial saying this is the first time someone with down syndrome was played as someone not being oh what do we do with her, you know, this was someone who fell in love and had a life and what have you. So, you know, smarter actors than me thought of and more high profile than me. This is a career path. Let's do that one. And they did. At the time, I was just interested in interesting characters. He thought that I was uh, I had Down syndrome, and he was so, he was so sweet when he realized that I was the person with Down. Do can I get you something to eat? Would you like some tea or coffee? And I thought. What is it? And he said, and is it hard? And you're learning lines. And I said, no, I, I'm just like a regular actress from the book, you know? And then they had the accent. I was like, oh, no. I have to get back to Stanley Sweetheart because, like I said, I was terrified because I'd been around a lot of out-of-work. I had worked as an actor, but 
no longer than a week on anything. And it wasn't an important role. It was more like background, small day player bits, you know, the, nothing that you had to really take responsibility for at the end and be reviewed and have people look at your work and go, either you suck or you don't suck. I, I didn't, I was not in that position. When I had come back to New York, the place that I was renting, they had a stack of uh, the New York Times and New York Magazine, and that's when John Simon, he was a critic, very nasty critic that would make fun of people's faces and their bodies and what have you, and he wrote scathing reviews. And I remember reading them at night and thinking, I'm going to be target practice for this guy. Like I said, it's one thing to dream about getting the brass ring, so to speak, getting an acting job and a big acting job at a big studio, especially when you're not groomed for it. And then you're there. You know, people are taking you seriously where people in the past were slamming doors in your face. So it was very scary. And I realized I wasn't ready for it. And I called up Marty Pohl and I said, I really have to talk to you because I don't think I can do this. And I went over to, I rode my bike over to his hotel on the east side and I had the script and I said, I'm not asking for anything. Just here's the script. I don't want to do this part. I'm not ready. I, I never really went to acting school except for NYU School of the Arts for a short time. And all we did there was lay on the floor and close our eyes and imagine things. That was not acting. You know, you have the English actors who do Shakespeare, but it was all that Grotowski rolling around in the dark and stuff. So I had no idea about anything, and I thought, this is the adult portion now, and I'm not ready. Uh, he laughed, and he said, I've interviewed actresses, New York, London, and Los Angeles. If I didn't think you were perfect for the role, I wouldn't have given it to you. Get out of here. Like I said, I was terrified, and one of the first scenes that we shot was that scene where I have the blonde wig and we're sitting around the table and all Michael Greer said, Michael Greer thought the movie was about him. And I like Michael and I wish he was still here because I do miss him. But at that time he kept saying to me, and he had that great voice and he kept saying to me, Oh, this is going to be great. The camera's going to follow me into this, the room and it's going to be a close up here, you know, and he, and it was all about him, you know, and I'd sit there at the table while they were lighting and putting things on and I would listen to him and I was like terrified. I thought, well, that's okay. I thought I'll do something to get myself fired and then I won't have to be in the movie. That's a very bad, I mean, but that's what you do when you're 20 and you're scared. Do you know what I mean? And you have, no background in anything. I'll just get myself fired. So I'm sitting there with the wig. Now I could have done a whole, I think in retrospect, if I wanted to get fired, I could have come late, <laughs> not known my lines, uh, say, complain about the, there's a million things I could have done to be fired, but I just thought I would act crazy at the table. <laughs> And they would see that how bad of an actress I was. And I'm talking about him getting some sort of Reiki in therapy where he has to get naked and swing him around. And I just started, and I was very, I remember being very relaxed because I had no pressure anymore. Diane and Vicky and Don were busy running lines and everything and this and that. And, that. and I remember thinking, I'll do this and I'll get fired. That's it. I just started, yeah, and they kind of swing around by the balls and stuff, and I started laughing hysterically. There was, I mean, I was strictly with the script. There was no laughter. There was, you know, line, 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 line. And I just started laughing and acting crazy. 
<laughs> cut. And Leonard came over and started hugging me. He says, that's so perfect. That's exactly what I want. So there never was any preparation. Back to your question, uh, I just thought I would come to work and just do whatever I felt like doing. That worked out well for you in this case. In this case, yes. And then, of course, uh, the movie didn't go anywhere, so nothing. Well, but it was a, it's a whole period of time in my life that was very amazing for a lot of things. But I, I, there was no, I didn't want to give you a slick answer, but there wasn't any preparation, but I had nothing to draw on. I remember that afro that I had. Because I remember saying to the hairdresser, he said, well, what should we do for your hair? And I said, I really want that kind of kinky black, you know, where it would be black. We'll have black blonde and my regular hair, but just have it like a gypsy. You know, I'm, I'm thinking 1940s Maureen O'Hara in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> and I said, like that, on 14th Street, there were all these places that sold wigs. You know, Afro, and I said, but I want one, a black one where it's like that, like a gypsy. That would be great. And when he came the next day, he had this Afro. And I thought, well, don't, you know, okay, fine. Yeah, say no, whatever. Uh, things just kind of fell into weird places. And I just went along with it because I just thought, well, this is, you know, the beginning of more things or not, or an, int- an interesting life. Why do you think that Stanley Sweetheart tanked when it came out? It wasn't very good. Why do you think it tanked? I usually hear at marketing, they didn't know how to sell it, came out at the wrong time, those kind of things. I think it did. I I, I mean, like I said, I can't be objective about it. Um, I don't know what version of the movie that you saw, because there's so many different versions of it. Jim Morrison did the music, and Richie Havens, and they're not in any versions that I've seen. Uh, so there was a lot of other things that were taken out. I know, well, Richie Havens and then, well, Bill Medley did the song, but it was Richie Havens initially. Richie Havens walked away from it because he thought it was too commercial. Now, I thought that was interesting because he's a man who made a fortune by doing McDonald's commercials. But uh, it's true. <laughs> um, Jim Morrison uh, songs. There were two of them, if I remember correctly. And um, they just cut those scenes out, so those were gone. Andy Warhol, you know, I mean, I, I read things that aren't even true about it because I was there from the beginning, like that Joe D'Alessandro was cast, and he ne- was never cast in. He hung around the set and wanting to be an extra in it, along with all the people from Max's Kansas City. He was never cast in the film. I mean, he might have been an extra in it. He was in the background, but I, I read something where he had been cast in it and he always was coming late to the set, so they fired him. That was never true. Don was uh, the only one who was officially cast in it and never fired or exchanged or anything else. It was always Don. Now, Quincy Jones's daughter, Jolie, she was the one who originally played my roommate, but then uh, backed out of it. Uh, he thought she was too too young to be in that kind of a film, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. A married, a many married man who did a lot of music about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I thought was a, so it was interesting. And uh, Vicky, who eventually did play my roommate, she was, I believe, one of the nurses 
I, 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 you have to ask Vicky, but I believe she was one of the nurses along with Karen Lynn Gorney in the film. And I think they thought, oh, wow, let's hire her. I'm pretty sure that's how she got to the part because we were in the middle of shooting and they had to start changing people. And Katie and Don didn't work out. Uh, Katie Heflin, but she went on to marry Bob Westbrook for a while, but there was more film on Donna. It was such a hard thing to find the right guy that Diane Hull got the part. What did you do after it came out and didn't do well? It was very hard because at the time, I kind of knew it wasn't going to go well towards the middle uh, when Bob left. You know, when things were going on with the script, he didn't like Don in the role. He kept saying he was too Pepsi generation. <laughs> he didn't care for him. And, you know, we had to start shooting. Then they fired Katie. And uh, Bob and Katie by then were an item. So okay. Bob and Katie decided, uh, you can see a tiny bit of Katie in one of the scenes when he's in the language lab. But they went off to Greece or Italy. I remember going to the boat that night. Bob's mom was there, you know, we all said goodbye. Yeah, Michael and I went to see Bob off, Bob and Katie off. So he was gone. Leonard was a TV director from like Mission Impossibles or, you know, he was slick. So he wasn't any kind of experimental kind of guy. So it just became like working for a corporation. Now I had done Up the Down Staircase uh, a couple of summers before. I was just somebody in the class. So, you know, a glorified extra, but that was two months of doing it. So I was used to doing that kind of work and it was Warner Brothers, I believe. So I was used to doing that kind of, you know, being professional and showing up. But like I said in the beginning, not having the responsibility of anything. You just show up over here, stand there, move this way, you know, and the producers was the same way. So this is a big film now, but it was still corporate, but they were trying to cash in on the youth market. And people took offense at that, the youth market that was there. But, of course, we had Easy Rider. Wasn't Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, aren't they big conservatives or something? Hopper became one. I'm not sure about Fonda. So it was interesting that, you know, Hollywood, which was going downhill rapidly at that point, uh, Easy Rider came in, which eh, I don't know how, what your feelings are about that film. I remember going with it with friends and thinking, this is so weird, you know, these guys on motorcycles and taking drugs and everything. For me, it wasn't anything I could relate to because the only women in the film were hookers who take acid and run around a graveyard. So, I mean, it wasn't something I could relate to, but it was nice to have a movie with a soundtrack. So MGM was trying to throw a soundtrack on it and be, I think they tried too hard. It wasn't, as they say, an organic experience. I did have a great time working on it. It was, uh, even though I was terrified at first, but when Leonard said, Linda, just whatever you want to do, you know, and I said, wow, I have now permission to be, you know, because mostly that was what, 1969? You're still being a nice person, so to speak. So all of a sudden to play this person who has no boundaries, who says and thinks and takes drugs and stuff, that was, you know, that was a very interesting uh, character to explore, but I had nothing to prepare with. I think what I brought to the table was an interest in exploring it. I didn't bring any, oh, well, yes, I remember my days taking drugs and going to orgies. I, I couldn't bring that to the table. I don't have it. 
but to explore it, that was fantastic. <laughs> that must have been a lot of fun to be able to have that freedom. And get paid for it. <laughs> it was nice. It was very nice. What are some of your other favorite roles that you've done over the years? I, I You know, I've never thought about that. You know, because uh, they're mostly all tied up with experiences. I mean, Terror at Red Wolf Inn, now there was an interesting experience. I became a member of the actor's studio. Lee Strasberg made me a member of the studio when I was around 27 or something like that. And then it became a whole different world of acting. We had to prepare and know things and background and all that stuff. Now, Red Wolf Inn, I had just done a film before that, a movie called Why. Do you know about that? Yes. Have you ever seen it? I've never been able to track that one down. Okay. Well, that was a film I worked on five days a week from January until around Memorial Day, I think it was. Another one like going to work every day. And in that, I played a pregnant teenage junkie. Uh, OJ played um, a football player, and Tim Buckley played a musician. And so there I was, the pregnant teenage junkie. But it was a job, and I got paid. So I had been doing that, and it was very nice because I'd been doing it for quite a long time. I thought, when this is over, I've never been to Europe, I'm going to take the money and go to Europe and see what that's like. Bobby Cohen, who produced the film, that was Harry Cohen's nephew, said to me, you know, a friend of mine is doing a movie. Uh, I think you're right for it. I'm going to, I don't remember how we got together, give them a call, whatever, but I want you to meet these people. And I thought, well, okay. And uh, I wound up going to their house in Culver City, which is right on the edge of the black neighborhood. So it wasn't, I mean, it was a development of tracked homes. It was a very strange area because it was heavily Inglewood. I forget the names of the town, but right around the airport, you know, it was near there. And I thought, this is very strange. Went out to their place, and I remember going into the living room, and it it was a gigantic waterbed in the middle of the living room, which was making me seasick. I met Bud and his wife, and his daughter was there. He told me about the film, and I said to him, because I was crazy. I had to play this pregnant, dying junkie for months on end. And who, it was like this emotional, and I said, do I have to get naked or have sex with anybody in this movie? And he said, no. I said, fine. And um, his daughter said, daddy, she's Regina, but she's too skinny. They said, you really are the character. And I said, seriously? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, look, I'll tell you something. Since I've been all this time working on this other movie, honing the script and everything, I really don't want to learn lines. <laughs> And someone told me about moment to moment, being in the moment. I mean, this is still cut and paste acting, moment to moment acting where you're in the moment. And however, I mean, I'm really glad that I was able to practice all these different methods <laughs> and make a living at it. Seriously, because I meet actors now who have who are a pain in the ass. <laughs> I have this. I have that. What's the shoes? What do they have for breakfast? You know, all this stuff. Uh, as long as I don't have to be naked or have sex with anybody, I'm fine with this. I don't want to read the script. You just tell me what's going on when we're on the set, okay? And he said, that's what you want? And I said, yeah, and I don't eat meat. Mike McCready's wife would make all these 
awful tasting vegetarian meals. But uh, anyway, so I never knew because I thought, because I remember when we were doing the kitchen scenes because we shot that in a soundstage in Hollywood. I remember saying, but I thought I was killed when we were in Santa Barbara because there was a scene where I'm in that greenhouse and I said, didn't I get killed? And he said, no, no. And people are looking and he says, she didn't read the script. It's fine. It's fine. He said, no, you live. And I said, that's great. But I thought I would bring this. I don't know what's going on next. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking if Lee Strasberg was sitting here. Well, actually, I did tell him these stories and he thought it was wonderful. Because I'd say, Lee, I never did these kind of preparations for things. I just went with instincts, what was right, what was in the moment. <laughs> I have actually been looking for why for years. Um, it is almost impossible to find. The only thing I remember seeing are um, Tim Buckley, ha or there's a website. I don't think it's actually Tim Buckley, but a website that has clips. So I've only seen clips from it. Well, what was interesting was that Lee Garms was the cinematographer. He worked with Joseph von Sternberg. And he did the burning of Atlanta for Gone with the Wind. He shot that. Oh, he was great. And this was the first movie that was done on videotape. He was quite wonderful. In fact, I found a, a still from it the other day. I've been, now that we're all home, I found this still. I thought, my God, I'm so beautiful as this dying junkie. Cause it was that lighting and everything that he did that, you know, von Sternberg kind of lighting. So why dovetailed into Terra House. I mean, like within weeks. Uh, I finished Y in around Memorial Day and then Terra House started, I think around June or something like that. And we had to, you know, I had to, you know, read with the other actors. I found John Nielsen because there was another movie I was going to do after Terra House, which mm -hmm. got off the ground. I was at the director's house one night and he said, William Morris keeps sending me these pretty boy actors. And he showed me John's picture. And I said, so you don't want this guy? And he said, no. And I said, can I have this picture? And I brought it over to Bud's. And I said, I think this would be the guy. And Bud said, let's call and let's call his agent, Fred Spector at William Morris. And he came and we read. And it was like, because there was a lot. I remember there was a lot of people who read for that part. A lot of, David Soul, I remember, kept reading for it. And a bunch, Bruno Kirby, Richard Dreyfus. There was ton. I mean, it was everybody who was around at that time was there, but uh, John was the right guy for it. But Alan Reese is a good film because you can find it on YouTube. Someone sent me a link the, about a month ago. I don't know. Criterion put it out. That won Best Film in Cannes. It won The Camera Door back then in 1976. And that was about migrant labor. So all the parts I've ever done are varied. I mean, you have this crazy person in Stanley Sweetheart, and then there's this rich kid junkie in Y, and then there's God knows what. I mean, there's Laverne Shirley, someone with Down syndrome, there's Alan Breesta being a migrant worker. So it's all been varied. I didn't get typecast. Well, people tried. I did, did do, you know, lots of junkie parts. I haven't seen all of them because uh, I didn't own a TV at that time. Your voice is credited for The Cotton Club and Scarface. What is the story with it? I did the sex sounds in Scarface. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I did other things in Scarface. Libertad, Libertad, you know, when they – and that was fun because we did that at the Brill Building, and everybody had to take their shoes and jewelry off. 
and we all had to walk around this room in the dark and not bump into each other and shout Libertad. You know, they have some sort of riot. I've only seen the film once. That was when we were doing the looping. Al has this big bedroom and uh, there's a hot tub. And I think Rocky Bauer is in the tub with these girls. And I remember having to do, uh, uh, and the sound guy kept saying, no, no, her, no, no, watch the lips. It's, mm, uh, you had to, you know, I had to sync it with the lips. So there's that. And then when they shoot up the uh, nightclub or they shoot up something, I, you know, I did the screaming on that, the screaming on that, uh, Libertad and the sex sounds. There's probably other stuff. I don't, I don't remember it. I just remember being in the dark going Libertad, Libertad and coming back again and doing, mm, ah, and, uh, for Cotton Club, a lot of finger snapping and white, uh, that was funny. We did that at the limelight. That was a church, which became a nightclub and stuff over in Chelsea. And because of the, the roof, half of the people who were doing the voice acting were white and the other half were black. And then we did scenes outside of the nightclub, you know, white people waiting outside a nightclub in Harlem. And so we you we know, oh, yes, hi. And then white people snapping. <laughs> Keeping time, and then we, and then you know, it was you know the black people inside, or we backed off. <laughs> but there was this. I, I haven't seen the film since I looped it. But I remember Gregory Hines did a song in there. She's tall. She's tan. She's terrific. And she, he, it was a a Bible group that he sang it for, and it's all these older black women who are reading the Bible and fanning themselves and they're snapping along and none of us. And they said, okay, stop this group, sit down. I remember that. It was funny. It was funny because there was a show on Broadway at the time. It wasn't Smokey Joe's cafe. I don't think whatever show, cause that was the cast that came to do the looping, the African-American actors, uh, the white actors, we all knew one another because we did a lot of looping together. But uh, they would do the tapping and the dancing, and it was just wonderful. But white people outside of the nightclub, you know. <laughs> Black people in a dressing room, and it would all be relaxed and calm and wonderful. It was good. I mean, that was uh, an interesting time. We did that for a couple of days at the limelight. That was fun. Looping is fun. What's been keeping you busy lately? I paint. I've been doing that for quite a while now. It started two years ago. I got very, very, very sick with the flu, uh, scarily sick. It took from, I got sick in January and I didn't get well until April. I was hospitalized because the fever wasn't going down. I was there and they said, well, you know, we're running out of room. It was so bad. So I was sent home. Didn't get better until April. I couldn't watch TV or hold a book or anything. It was that bad. The only thing I could do was close my eyes and imagine color. Only thing I could do. My birthday came around and my husband said, what would you like for your birthday? And he said, art supplies. So we got them. Now, I try. I There's a local art school. And um, on Saturdays, I sketch. It's a figure drawing thing. And I sketch that. And on the bulletin board... The hospital where I was had a thing called the Art of Healing, and they wanted submissions from everywhere in America for this show, and it would hang for a year in this place. Uh, and I thought, 
what have I got to lose? How weird. So I submitted a painting. It got accepted. It was, you know, curated, got accepted. Last October, I went to the opening night. There was an orchestra there. There was catering. I mean, it was an event. There was paparazzi. My painting was on the wall behind a velvet rope. I mean, and I said to my husband, you know, a year ago, I wasn't even painting. And I never in my wildest dreams thought I would have a painting hanging at the wall of this hospital. Now I'm terrified of going back to that hospital, being on a gurney, laying underneath it while they look for a ventilator. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was really pretty magical going to that. And it'll be there. And the show ends in July, September. I don't know. Do we go back and get the paintings? Do they have the illness on it? Do we have to hose them down? I have no idea. But it's so weird the way life is. So, yeah, I paint. I've got paintings all over the place. Is there a place where we can see them? I have some up on Instagram, Linda Gillen 101. Miss Gillen, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Well, I hope I've given you some good information. I don't think I have. Where did you end up growing up at? Uh, well, I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, Carthage, Tennessee, on the banks of the Cumberland River. Cumberland was originally the uh, the Wariota, which was named by the American Indians and the Shawnee. From there on, I, I migrated up into the various universities, Swanee, and then the University of Tennessee, and then to New York, and then to Hollywood, and so forth. How did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? Well, I used to sing in church. There was the Methodist church two blocks from my house, and I kind of grew up in that church. And I used to sing in the church. And then I was asked to do a play, one act play called The Valiant when I was in high school. I had no idea of being an actor, but and but my my teacher, my math teacher, also presented plays and she asked me to do this character and I said well I'm not she said well read it and I read it and I was it was called as I say it was called The Valiant about a guy that's going to be executed for apparently for a crime he'd done and this woman comes to visit because she thinks it's her long lost brother and she wanted to make sure to find out if it was or was not and she interviews him and they talk and they of course, then she leaves, and he'd convinced her that he's not her brother. Of course, in the end, he quotes a line that she's said to her brother like Shakespeare, only cowards die of the death many times on the valiant taste of death but once. And he quotes that line. So I did it, and I, had a, I enjoyed doing it. At the time, I was only interested in girls and football. But at the, at the time, I had an English teacher named Hattie Terry. I couldn't get her class, and she didn't like me, and I didn't, you know, I was I was not a good student, and so we did a performance, and and, uh, and afterwards I, I started to leave the stage and come out, and there was this woman, this teacher Hattie Terry, 
And she was a rather large woman, and she had a lot of makeup on her face and maybe to cover up some acne. I don't know. She had cried tears running down. It made uh, like gullies down her cheek through her makeup. And she said something, something about how touching it was and so And I looked at this woman and said, well, maybe there's a communication I can find. There's maybe something here. This I couldn't any way, any other way, make a connection with this woman. But if I used a vehicle, somebody else's word, in a, in a, on, a on a legitimate stage, to do that and you know make a connection, I said, well, there's a pony in here somewhere. So I, th- I, th- I really think that that was the moment that I said, well, this is an empowering thing. This is a horse I can ride around the oval, you know, so I, I think that's it. How did you decide this is going to be what I want to pursue full time? Well, after going through a whole series of being knocked out in football in college and, and deciding that that's not my avenue if I wanted to have a brain cell left. And I switched to the university. I was at then I went to University of Tennessee, and I got involved in theater and 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 opera there. I was, of course, as I was a singer, and I'd won a, a Grace Moore operatic, a Grace Moore scholarship. Back then, Grace Moore, I don't know if you know, she was a big star in some operas and some films back then. Not many people alive might know that, but uh, she was quite revered, and I think there's a an homage place there for her in her, I don't know if it's her hometown or somewhere in there, but, but anyway, it's a quite prestigious thing. And there was a statewide contest of uh, professional singers at the time and every two years. And I, I won it. And I had a, a one and uh, a cash award when it was quite a bit back then. It's nothing now. It's like lunch money now almost. But at that time, I was in the Air Force ROTC, and I was going to be a pilot. I'd been in the Air Force ROTC, ROTC for four years. But then the war was over. But but right before I graduated, and they gave me a, uh, another physical, and uh, my eyes were below twenty twenty, and. So they said, well, you can't be a pilot. And that's why, I, I, well, I wanted to be a jet pilot. You know, of course, most every young kid did. <laughs> hey, I'll be a jet pilot. But he said I could go in and be a, a second lieutenant. And, and I said, well, I don't know about that. Well, he said, well, if you don't want either one, you can just walk away. You, Our contract is broken. That's another point of realization. I said, my whole path of life just switched right then. And I said, Boy, I've been recognized quite a bit for my ability to do certain things and and to transfer feelings and uh, and and I'd won this you know the scholarship to go to New York and study and and I was married and had a little girl already and had a daughter by that time and so we well I said let I'll, I'll go to New York and become a big Broadway star <laughs> and so I met my wife and I and, and a little girl took off moved to New York of course that was when uh, I found out that uh, it wasn't going to be that easy so anyway that was that was the pathway I, I took to get there I, I took the leap off the cliff and on the way down I said well, maybe I, I don't know about this what year was that that you moved to New York it was 1957 I got a job at uh NBC is a guide because I, I, my my degree in college was in journalism at radio and television and 
so I had a college. But to be a guide at NBC to you know, take the people around the studios, you had to have a college degree, and it helped. It helped to have. I mean, to guide. I made sixty bucks a week at the time. Of course, our apartment at the time cost sixty bucks a month, so. I could manage that, and so I did that for a year. Then I looked, and I got a, I sang at Radio City Music Hall in the Glee Club there. It was from next door, and there was you couldn't get the job then at that Glee Club because in show business, you know, you open and close, which I did. I'll go into that later if you want to. So many times that I just felt wonderful to have that job, and it. It'd been there 25 years, uh, uninterrupted. It's a big tourist thing, especially in the big Radio City Music Hall where they had the Rockettes and the Corps de Ballet and the symphony with the stage up and down. And, and I just was happy as a pig in shit, you know, on stage singing. They were making a living. And I think I made 75 bucks a week doing that. Four shows a day, uh, uh, seven days a week, and then had a week off. But I still, I was happy. I was, my wife wasn't as thrilled as I was at that time, you know. Well, she was glad I had a job, but for a while, I, I was just, you know, I was what a rude awakening that was. And oh, I'm sorry to let right up. It was we were let go. Uh, I said, "What do you mean? We've we've been fired? Yeah, they, after 25 years, they said they disbanded the Glee Club." I said, "What?" And I said, "Well, God, what am I going to do now?" And so I'm in the dressing room, and, we, and they were like. 20 guys in the dressing room, all great singers, you know. It was where Jan Pearson, Leonard Warren, a lot of, lot of opera singers sang there at one time where you could do your shows and have rehearsal dream, you could go and work on your repertoire, and then you could go out and do your voice lessons and whatever. And it was, it was a nice job. But then, okay, I'm fired. And so what am I going to do? So the guy that dressed next to me in the thing was, was bass from Texas. And he had the distinction of being a championship farter. He won the contest before always. He had the championship as having the, the best fart in the whole place, which I don't know. To me, I couldn't stand it. I just, I just, there wasn't up my, I mean, I'm on a farm. I knew all, and I, but I just couldn't stand to be in a dressing room with people that farted. These, these men who dress in coat and tie <laughs> and are all well-educated and everything. And their release was farting. I, 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 I could, but anyway, Clyde said, 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 buddy, I was called buddy all my life. Said, buddy, he said, uh, I see here in the New York Times they're having a having a contest for the national hog calling champion. Why don't you go and see if we can? I said, I said that kind of call hogs? I'm an opera singer. I'm not. And he said, well, it says here, generous reward, monetary reward. And I said, I don't give a shit. I'm not going to. So in between shows, I was going to a voice lesson. It was around 57th Street. And after the voice lesson, I'd walk back towards the music hall. But I walked along 57th Street. And Carnegie Hall is on the corner. And I used to love to walk down that street in Carnegie Hall because you could get some energy just walking by Carnegie Hall and walking down that street thing. And I looked up, and it started to rain. And I looked over there, and there was Nola Studios right across the street. And I'd auditioned for a lot of shows in there back then. And so I said, well, I go in there. 
And I was curious. So he had the hog calling championship up on the floor. So I took the elevator up just to look, stick my nose in and say, what, what, New York, they're having a hog calling, national hog calling championship in New York on 57th Street in this little studio. This is great. And I opened the door and I said, some guys I knew who were singers sitting there waiting to audition. And I looked around, they'd opened the door with the, and the lights were and cameras were going on in there. And, and I said, well, what the, Good. What is this? And the stage manager came out and some. He says you have to sign in. I said, Oh no, no, no I'm not. I just came up here and decided I can't. I I got to go back to the to the music hall. I got a show in in, in about an hour, so I, I got to go. He said, Oh no, I can get you in first then. <laughs> Before I knew it, I was in this room with TV cameras and all the suits and the, and they had a table lined up here with New York uh, performers, you know, from Music Man was in, well, Robert Preston show Music Man was their time, and there was unrecognized two of them, Iggy Wilton and one of the dancers there of course had them dressed up in, the, in bib overalls and you know, they looked like they were had something to knew something about pigs, I don't know <laughs> And so, and so I, I said, well, what am I doing here? And the, and the guy said, okay. And I said, well, see, I, I'd never called hogs. I'd raised on the farm. But I knew my, my father and my uncle had called hogs. I listened. Well, it, it wasn't a rocket science, you know. It's just, I knew. So uh, so he, I, he said, okay. And I said, okay, what? And he said, call hogs. I said, what kind? And it got really quiet. It got really quiet in the room. I said, oh, my, it's one of those, uh, like in Oprah's aha moments. I said, oh, nobody in here knows anything about call the dogs. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to have some fun here. And I said, what, do you want me to call Poland China's? Or, or you want me to call an old uh, sow over on the hill or some shoats over there or little piglets up close? What do you want me to want? And they just lit up. They got like, oh my gosh! And so I, like, I threw a, a lure out there, and I had all the fish chasing that lure. And so I improvised some hog callings. I won the national hog calling championship. So I went back to music hall, and I said, "Hey, Clyde, I won." <laughs> and that night they had me on the Jack Parr show. On the and, and the next day on the, on the big radio shows and other, but I was on the par show on that night and uh, and I called my wife uh, between shows before us to go down to do the par show. I said, "Hey, honey, I'm going to be on the Jack Par show tonight." And she said, "Oh, good. What are you going to sing?" I said, "I'm not singing. I'm calling hogs and hung up." <laughs> it was mean. It was mean of me to do that. But so on the par show. I I I just you know told him Jack Parr in the audience pretty pretty much what I'm telling you now, and and I took the butt what I told him and I said I, I and I even called hogs in German. I said Kommen Sie her, Schwein. <laughs> he got a big laugh. So anyway, so I went on from there. Those early gigs that you had on things like Naked City or Car Fifty Four, where are you? Are those all being shot in New York? Everything. I, I only worked in New York. Uh, I was told I should go to California. I'd work every day. I'd be working all the time because, well, I still had my southern, I'm from Tennessee, I still had my southern accent. So uh, the writers in New York, most of the writers were, well, not most of them, but really good writers were Jewish New York writers who had a rhythm in their writing. 
they would say, Brandon, you're really funny, but we write on a different rhythm. And so I, I could play baseball players. I played and I played baseball players, soldiers, any kind of thing, thing where I didn't have to be from New York or be a New York cop or something. I could fake my way through a few things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, naked city, the first one I did, I was a sailor, a drunken sailor, on, and uh, it was a really good thing. And by the time I was doing that stuff, I'd, I had already studied a big family. I ended up with uh, seven children, five by my first wife and two from my second wife. I, I had so much, such a big nut, I couldn't take a chance to go for two weeks. I was working as a waiter in a nightclub, and I was doing and it, I'm doing off-Broadway shows, and I'd get one that would close. And, and so, I, I believe me, it was like, just barely making buy them. One, I remember one time we had nine bucks instead of buying something to eat with. It was so hot in New York, we bought a fan, $9 fan. How did you get the gig on Sesame Street? I was doing one of those shows. There was a club called The Upstairs at the Downstairs on West, uh, 57th Street, well, 56th Street, 37 West 56th Street. And this was during the heyday of the golden age of cabaret in New York. And we, there was topic, we did topical reviews there and we'd been doing them since 60. It was one of my, actually my first job as a, I covered three guys and the first show they did there and, and worked as a waiter. And I said, hmm, I made up more money as a waiter than they were making doing the show. So the next year I begged off, and but they kept me on as a waiter. And, and back to all the, the the staff there, the maitre d', the waiters, and most of the bartenders. When when the owner's the owner was Irving Haber, he owned it, and his brother Billy Haber ran the bar downstairs. But most everybody else were either directors or writers or, or actors working. And so if we got a gig, I, you know, I did a movie in Germany, gone for three months, came back, and I had my job. It's, it, it moved up the line. And so it was the actor's dream island to go to. And, of course, then later on, after I was got kind of a name, kind of, I, at this time, I was actually writing for the show, some of the show, couple of the shows there and performing my own material there. And when I was doing a show uh, at that time with my partner, Jimmy Catusi. John Stone, who had been in a show there, and he, he's the one that started Sesame Street. But we didn't know what it was. And, and John Stone, he he come and said, buddy, you want to do a, just a, a few comedy sketches for a thing we might do here on educational television? I said, well, what? And he, he said, you need a partner. You got anybody? I said, Jimmy. Jimmy Catusi, we worked we worked together all the time, and we we, we bounce off each other really good. And he said, okay. And well, I got to tell you right, Jimmy and I are both alcoholics. <laughs> so Jimmy, Jimmy is the only only live breathing person that was funnier drunk than he was sober. Most most of the drunks think they're funnier when they're drunk, and they're not. But Jimmy, of course, he was funny when he's sober and and, and inebriated. But Jimmy, and I said, Jimmy, you want to do these sketches with me up here? And he said, well, what? And I said, I don't know. We'll go up and see. And so they handed us, I think they gave us five sketches to do. And we looked at them and said, we're going to shoot them. And so Jimmy and I looked at him and I said, oh, Jimmy, I think we can do this here and that there. And you say, you, we stuck to the sketches, but we figured out ways to do them, make them more visual. And and so we shot five of those sketches and we had a good time. It was fun. And we laughed and it was really good. But that was the end of it. 
that was the end of it. So we went back and went back doing the shows and, and drinking more whiskey. <laughs> so in in the fall, I got a call from John Stone. Said, uh, buddy said, come on up to the Plaza Hotel. There's a screening, Sesame Street. And I said, what's that? He said, that's that's the show. You know, you did those sketches. He said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said well, they're in, the, they're in Sesame Street, the show. I said, oh, he said, come on up and see. And so Jimmy and I went up, went into the Plaza Hotel. And again, the television cameras and people and the, all the hoity-toity in New York. And they were, this is a big deal. They were really promoting this. They were all excited about the show they had. And we didn't know what Jimmy and I just sat there in the chair looking around and oh, see all these important people that were there. And the show started. And I said, oh, well, this is interesting. And then all of a sudden we came on. I almost fell out of our chair. Because there we were in this big screen, and uh, uh, you know, it, of course, a big screen showed back then. It people started laughing, and they laughed, and we laughed, and we had a good time, and and, we, and that's that was Sesame Street. Tell me about Stanley Sweetheart. How did you get involved with that one? Leonard Horn, as you know, was the director, and he directed commercials. Do you know about that? And he was a commercial director at the time too, I think. I'm pretty sure I'd done a couple of his commercials. I can't remember which. I did over 100 commercials back then. Besides waiting on table, doing commercials, and doing everything I could to keep me in the family afloat, I did all these commercials. And he was, and I was, I guess I was kind of well known and around town, but not in Hollywood. Because right? they were in New York and doing, doing these shows. But so I got a call, said, uh, come up and do this scene. All of a sudden, I, mean, I was on the set and I had this scene to do with Don Johnson in the... It was just shot on the Upper West Side. There was a movie theater called the Riviera. There was the twin, Riviera and the Rivioli, I think. On the corner of 96th Street and Broadway. On the roof, there had a nice big rooftop where they shot one big scene that I was in that was cut. It was, it was big extravagant. I think it was referred to was there was something. No, this whole scene wasn't cut, but but my part with the naked women and stuff was uh, was cut. But the the scene that was in the film, which is a really good short scene with with Don Johnson and me, just a few blocks up up on the other side of the street in a little coffee shop, it looks a lot like the coffee shop where the Seinfeld. <laughs> it's a coffee shop there. Well, a little like. Anyway, that's about where it was. It was a real live coffee shop, and we shot the scene in there. Of course, in the meantime, I had talked with John Johnson about, you know, what's going on. and Because he, he was a kid. He was just a kid, and he was telling me about all the naked women. And he was, he was like a wide-eyed, and uh, here I am doing this, you know. Telling me about who was pretty and who went and so forth. And we shot this really good scene, and and then that was pretty much it. And I was I was surprised when I went to see that when I saw the film. I haven't seen it in all these years, uh, but I, when I did, I, when I originally saw it, or the only one and only time I saw it, that that other big scene because I played the guy in the coffee shop and also played the psychiatrist. Right, right. Yeah, tell me about that scene, because I've never seen that either. Well, I guess anybody saw it. Uh, but, but you you know, there was a scene on the rooftop with all the, uh, like the uh, Warhol people and stuff up there bouncing around on this rooftop. I can't remember that much about it. 
to be honest with you. But that's where the scene, and I would see psychiatrists, and, and he came up and with the women involved in him and t- topless stuff. Uh, I don't know. I think the wonderful, you, you, have you interviewed Linda Gillen? She was involved in that. She might have been a nurse in that. And might have been topless. I don't know, but it, I don't know if it's. I, you can tell I don't know anything about it except I thought, oh, I'm a guy in the coffee shop now. I'm playing it because this was all in his mind. I assumed when I said, oh, I think okay, I'll do that. That's about all I can tell you. I was curious what it was like being in. Uh, you better watch out. I've written about that quite a bit too, and I, I have a new book coming out, and I've written some more about it, and. Uh, the character I played, and and as as it was compared to the Bickle role that De Niro did, you know, in Taxi, and and this recent the, the the what's his name Joaquin uh, did in the this the, in the Joker this year about how the insanity of these three characters were on a parallel. They thought they were doing the right thing, but uh, yeah, I auditioned for this role, and 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 it was re- I just. They'd auditioned everybody in New York, I think, and then all of a sudden the director, uh, uh, Louis Jackson, said, oh, you're the guy. So I just said, okay, and I read it, and uh, I said, this is this is really good. It's a psychological thing about what happens to you. Remember when you're a kid, and oh, there's a Santa Claus. Oh, there's an Easter Bunny. Oh, there's a religion. Oh, there's a thing. You know, oh, wait a minute. You know, but there's certain people, and this kid, he took it everything, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. They're good kids and bad kids. And and Lewis said all this. He'd done all this history about you know about uh, in Germany about uh, how it's when it started out with the you know kids got to, if they were bad kids they they would get delivered lumps of coal. I love doing it and love the idea of doing it. But he had to do it for a dime, you know. And we I worked six days a week for four weeks I think. And I, I, right in the middle of that, I did uh, Dress to Kill. I had three days off. I did Dress to Kill on those three days off. It was just, it was like zero degrees. I had to wear that beard and out there, and I was sweating and doing this stuff. And I couldn't go in and eat. They fed me through a straw, and I stayed outside. But, hey, this is art. You know, I'm I'm happy I'm doing it. And uh, you know, it never opened. That film never opened. People got a hold of it, and it's, you know, it played every year. Now, I've, I've been asked to come to it. I have a couple out here. And they have shows around you know, the season, Christmas season. And all these fans, there quite a number of fans in that show. And it plays every, every, and now it's, this year, spring, it's on show, was on Showtime this Christmas. You know, and that's up a step. It got some critical reviews, like it was shown privately or something or whatever. And it was during that time of the slasher films, which are still very popular, I understand. The slasher film, this wasn't a slasher film. This was a psychological study of a young guy who didn't, who was influenced by what happened when he saw his mother and what Santa Claus were doing that was shocking to him and and what it changed his life and what happened to him after that. So, it, of course, he does kill people in, in a bizarre way, in kind of different ways. And it's, it's, but it's, it's poetry in this thing. There's poetry in this film, uh, in, in the essence and telling of the story and his and, and the tragedy of it. And 
some people didn't like the ending, but I thought that's the best part when he he's in the sleigh in the in his van. He's a, he's, he's a, he, of course he's a, you know was a, a a good carpenter. He could he could make toys and make mold toy soldiers and make car carve toy things that would hang around and paint his wagon. And to make it look like Santa's wagon, and everybody, and the back then, they had me see a film called M. It Peter, it was a German film, Peter Lorre. They had me go see that before we shot the film. That's the way you had me see. It. They said just to see that there's some humanity, and no matter if people that do really terrible things, and inside of them, there's usually some humanity in them. But I remembered him, his speech. Peter Lorre's speech when they ever they all the guys with the torches chase him down the corner him and he said, well, wait a minute, he says said, You have a chance here. You you have a choice. You can kill me or not kill me. When I kill I have no choice. I have to kill. It's hard to get into a crack like that, but uh you know, I had to put that in the back of my mind and I don't know that Lou thought about it that deeply. I think Lou just was going on this, the surface of what he'd been told and and how he felt and with with the what he had going for him there. Well, tell me a little bit more about your books and where's the best place to pick those up? Well, you can get most of them on uh, Amazon. You've got Brandon R. Maggart on Amazon. And there are three of them you get. Uh, uh, anyway, the new one is the the best of all of them. Can I read you just the first paragraph? So, it, Oh, sure. Yeah, this is to let people know about what the crap this book is about. If you enjoy Johann Sebastian Bach and Walt Whitman, have laughed at Moms Mabley, Dorothy Parker, George Carlin, the seven words you can't say on television, and Mark Twain, the jumping frog of Calaveras County, if you've been swept away by Gershwin, Puccini, Julie Stein, and say, Stephen Sondheim, fascinated by the mind and personalities of Nikola Tesla and Maria Callas, transported by Miguel de Cervantes enter into my imagination, or William Blake in seeing a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, bedazzled by the words and worlds of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez as a hundred years of solitude, found a resonance with Vincent van Gogh, Salvador Dali, M.C. Escher, the drawing hands, and Edward Hopper, the loneliness of his nighthawks, and are open to the concept of non-local connections, quantum entanglement. You might come to live with me in Where Possums Dance and the Willow Sings, the full title of which is To Soar Aloft on Butterfly Wings Where Possums Dance and the Willow Sings, off to the near side of the moon to see himself, who I believe to be me. If you don't identify with some part of that, you probably got no business uh, <laughs> reading this book or listening to it. And I, I go and say this is this is my new book is an archaeological autobiographical dig both on and off the stage into the life and mind of a now eighty six year old actor, writer, father, grandfather, ex husband, former lover, humorist, and long time sober alcoholics thrust into and through the present day human experience. To give you kind of an idea, wouldn't Mr. Maggot, thank you so much for your time. Okay, I hope you can use some of that. And if you have a chance, you can 
uh, send me a copy of it. Uh, I, uh, I can send it by, by Dropbox or however you send those things. See the children play the ball See them playing along the hall It makes me cry to see them smile I see the moon, I see the sky I see reflections in my eye And there's no one to share my life I need a man All right, we're back and we're talking about The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. Now, I know you mentioned a little bit about the three endings and I you talked about the book ending. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other endings that might have happened for this? I heard that they shot three different endings. We, we know the one ending that we see in the film. Um, there was another ending where uh, after they find out about Danny's death, Stanley goes and meets with Kathy and takes her to the airport because she's so distraught because I believe in the book, you know, she was in a relationship with, with Danny by that point. So she's pretty upset and Stanley says goodbye to her at the airport. And I think the book just ends with him sort of, um, I think just going back to his place or something. Um, but in the movie, Don Johnson, I guess, suggested the ending that they shot which was, I think, whether he just goes back to California or whether he goes back into New York. But he said, I would have to look at the ending. Um, yeah, I believe they shot three different endings. Yeah, because I remember him talking about how he just kind of closed his eyes and spun around, and then it ended up pointing to, like, an uptown bus. So he ended up taking that back to Columbia and back to his life. Because they don't really talk about him, that he's not going to class. There's one scene where he confesses to Danny, like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm dropping out. I'm not officially dropped out, but I'm dropping out. I'm not going to class. I can't complete my movie. And so things are going bad for him that way. But I mean, after a few scenes of him at school, especially in the language lab, it's like, we never really see him go to school at all. No. He, and in the book, he pretty much abandons it pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, it, it just sort of, yeah, I guess they dropped the whole, the whole college student thing pretty early on. And I guess that kind of goes to the letter from his mother talking about just what a kind of slacker he is and that she's worried about him and that they're running out of the money that uh, his father left him or left them when his father died. And that, you know, she pretty much thinks, like we do, that he's not going to finish things and that he is going to drop out. Well, that's what it brings me to is like the type of character that he is and why I say he's almost like, how close is he to a kind of madness? Like, is he, is he able to be able to function in society? Is he, is he going to be able to continue living the way he is? Is he running out of money and, you know, he's become a drug addict and he dropped out of school. You know, what is this guy going to do? He's lost in a fantasy all the time. And so I kind of like this sort of open ending that the, the movie actually chooses on some level with the with the freeze frame of him just sort of walking. What is going to be sort of become of this character? And what's interesting is that I, I did come across one article where I read that Martin Pohl 
asked Robert Westbrook to write a sequel for Sammy Sweetheart and set it in Rome. That would have been interesting. Which is Imagine where uh, Stanley Sweetheart, like in a giallo. Which is where he, uh, uh, where Westbrook actually ran off uh, with uh, with, with yeah. his one Rome. So that that, yeah. that 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 you know perhaps was why. He's like, oh, you're you're <laughs> Rome. Oh, uh, groovy. Uh, <laughs> maybe we can do a sequel there. I would have loved to see a Rome sequel. <laughs> yeah, I know. Those opening credits are so dire and down that I'm surprised that they didn't become the the end credits just because the movie is kind of light once we get past the credits for a little while but man oh man those opening credits are just such a downer you know like looking at records in, uh, uh, like music stores that sell old LPs they'll often be like collections of m- movie music of any given uh, year or whatnot like oh uh, 1970 in film music or whatever, or, uh, or the hit movie songs of, of the year. And, and they're, they're all like covers, uh, oftentimes, it seems to me, uh, like other artists covering whatever song it is. I've seen, um, Nobody Knows, which I think in the, in the film version is, uh, Bill Medley. Is that the, is that right, Jared? Yeah. Yeah. So he, I, he was replaced on, on these other albums, uh, which is interesting, but covered by other artists. So I don't know. Well, initially, it, uh, Nobody Knows was performed by Richie Havens. And it, that was initially the person who was going to do the theme song. And, you know, he was hot off of Woodstock. Richie Havens was pretty big at the moment. And, you know, to have him do the theme song would have been pretty cool. But he apparently saw the film and then wanted uh, his name and song stripped or his vocals stripped from the film. And there was also another song because there was an artist named Kathy Smith who uh, was on the soundtrack as well. She had a song called The End of the World, which was supposed to be in the film. And she was on uh, Richie Haven's Stormy Forest label. And when he removed his song, he also took her song with him. And so that song got taken from the film as well, unfortunately, which is really unfortunate because that's a great song, End of the World by um, Kathy Smith. They ended up doing the Bill Medley vocals, I believe, two days before the film's release, is what I read. Yeah, that's how quick it happened. So it was a very hurried, hurried replacement. And then they put his vocals on. And apparently, according to Linda Gillen, she said that Don Johnson was okay with it because she was he was buddies with Bill Medley. So he was stoked that his his friend was going to do the vocals for it. Two days before the uh, um, before the release, uh, they would have had uh, a wet print. They actually call it that. A wet print is like right out of the soup. Well, and at that time. Too, I'm sure that they weren't opening wide like they do now. It probably would have been a limited release to what New York and LA. I mean, I know it premiered at the Paris Theater in New York. I think it, they they did some sneak preview screenings before the rated X cut. I keep seeing various ads for the Paris. Some say rated X, some say rated R. So it may have had the rated X print for a week or something, and then they switched to, to the R. I don't know, um, but that X print got out. And a few spots. I know it played at Nordhaus Theater in New York, I think maybe a month early in April of 1970. And then they have the Orange County screenings. And, you know, I think most of the screenings I've seen were either in California or New York. But what's interesting, too, is that, you know, in, in um, for the first two years, well, when they first put the movie out, they kind of sell it as an art film. The reviews start coming in and they're not so hot. It seems like they kind of shift the way they're sort of selling the film at that point. And then, it, you know, I noticed 
like when it's double featured, sometimes it's double featured with like a really artsy film, like Blow Up or or Zabriskie Point or, or or Get Carter or something. And then the other, you know, other times it's being double featured with some like sexploitation film. So it was almost like they didn't really know what to do with the film. They had these artistic intentions. They wanted to put this honest art film out of looking at the life of the youth and trying to be as honest as they could. But when they felt like the reviews weren't really supporting that, they had to kind of shift gears. By by the time that they had to settle the suit in 1972, because that's when they paid the two million out, that's pretty much when the film just completely disappeared. And I you, you, I think it only only screen I could ever see it pop up on was in 1988. It popped up as part of a Boston, uh, I mean a Boston uh, gay and lesbian film festival. And it played for two nights on that. And that was like the first time it had played since probably 1972 or three. And then the only other time has been when we had the screening at Alamo Draft House. I guess they saw the gay subtext a lot more than we necessarily saw. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was reading too that at the time it was the first uh, festival that they had put together. So they, I think they were also a little hard up for material for the, for the actual festival. So I think they were like, oh, this has a little bit of a subtext. Let's put it in. I think it was a little bit on that. A little bit. But the film is, you know, it does specifically, it is fascinated by the ideas of sexual identity. So I guess it does sort of make sense that it would be part of a festival. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Cher oncle, je te demande conseil. Mon mari à présent n'est plus qu'un renégat qui a compromis l'avenir et le bonheur des siens pour de mauvaises idées, progressistes, dangereuses. Pour cette raison, je crois de mon devoir de le dénoncer aux autorités, afin qu'il soit arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté. C'est pour rébellion militaire qu'on t'arrête, salaud. Et il savait qu'il a dénoncé. That's right. We'll be back next week with Fernando Arabal's Viva la Muerte. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Daniel and Jared. So, Daniel, what is happening in your world, sir? The pandemic has cut a lot of things short. Uh, I was supposed to be directing uh, a new series for for uh, for you know uh, an HBO show that got postponed, uh, and then um, various other projects that I uh, that I was working on just kind of got got you know cut short. Uh, and, uh, kind of, uh, playing the waiting game, biding my time. 
right now. Uh, the run of Overwhelm the Sky got also cut short. We were, which is my uh, film that I directed, which uh, had a had a play in New York, and then was gonna we, we were gonna show in L.A. in May, and then that uh, that of course uh, couldn't happen. Uh, but, uh, that will be opening on, uh, in iTunes and, uh, and it'll be on Amazon next month. And then it'll be on Netflix in November. Other than that, uh, I mean, Jared and I are kind of working on, uh, a nominal or a kind of a loose sequel of sorts to, uh, this film to, to Stanley Sweetheart in a way, uh, mm-hmm. which we were talking about a little more recently. Um, where I mean, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm reading currently, interestingly enough, I'm reading uh, the James Leo Harley he, uh, novel, uh, who he wrote Midnight Cowboy. He also wrote a book called, uh, uh, Season of the Witch, which is an overused title. It's been used for a lot of things. Uh, but it's a, another kind of counterculture saga of a young woman coming to New York in, uh, late sixties and getting caught up in, uh, local, uh, free love and drug culture. So, um, I'm, I'm maybe going to be, uh, borrowing a bit from that. Uh, and then, you know, it's kind of, trying to formulate a new uh, narrative around which a, a Stanley-like character who might even be named Stanley, kind of uh, where, where he goes uh, after, in a way. I mean, it, I, 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 as I told Jared, I kind of want it to be like uh, Godard once said that you could have uh, faded out from uh, Bonjour Tristesse and put a title card in uh, th- that said uh, five years later and then cut into his his movie Breathless, uh, both Dean Steeberg. So kind of uh, thinking along those lines, two very different movies, but they have the same kind of like character prototype, I guess, phenotype, uh, and might even share a name. So that's one project that's on the burner. And then I might be working on a uh, feature-length music, uh, musical, uh, original musical uh, with a local um, departed uh, Bay Area song songwriter and filmmaker's uh, um, uh, collection of songs. And, uh, yeah, you know, I've got other projects doing, doing commentaries too for, uh, disc releases, which has been fun. Jared, what keeps you busy? Uh, well, right now, uh, during this, this time, uh, during the quarantine lockdown time, um, I've just been, you know, watching a lot of movies, been taking a break from everything. I was doing, uh, background acting for different TV shows and films, but now that all the productions have kind of stopped, so I'm just kind of on hiatus at the moment. Just sort of taking a break. Yeah. You saw Captain Milkshake recently for the first time, which we mentioned. I did. I really enjoyed that film. Um, yeah, I've been watching a lot of, I've uh, been kind of going through a lot of uh, counterculture films lately. Uh, I've watched that one, Captain Milkshake. I watched another film called Explosion from 1969, a movie called River Run. That was pretty great. Um, that was, I think, from 1967. But yeah, I've just been going through and watching a lot of um, counterculture films. I've been writing down a lot of different ideas and working on some rough drafts uh, for the project uh, Daniel and I are working on. But that's been pretty much it And until uh, things get a little bit better out there and I can get back to work. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Feel like I'm made out of gingerbread. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. From thick and lip lick 
American gingerbread. Uh-huh. 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 Can't think about rainy weather now. I finally got myself together now. Fresh out of the pan, sweet gingerbread man. Peppermint, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Nice, sticky hand, sticky peppermint, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. sugary cloud I'm floating on, sun spreading my suit of sugar coating on, all tasty and tan, sweet gingerbread man. Fresh out of the pan, sweet gingerbread man. Gingerbread, uh-huh, uh-huh. Won't think about rainy weather now. I finally got myself together now. All tasty and tan, sweet gingerbread man. Fresh out of the pan, sweet gingerbread man. Sweet gingerbread man All tasty and tan Sweet gingerbread man Gingerbread, gingerbread, gingerbread man If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.